Good morning, everyone. And just like that, it is 6 a.m. here on the East Coast. We hope you're having a good morning and glad you're with us. I'm here with Erica Hill. Good morning. Good morning, my friends. My, my favorite like color. like a bright ray of sunshine. Oh, and you. <laughs> and poppy red. That's what she texted me this morning. I'm wearing poppy red <laughs> for you, and I appreciate you. There's a lot to talk about this morning. We're joined by our CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig, and CNN political commentator, Errol Lewis, at the table to break down the biggest stories today. So let's get started with five things to know for this Thursday, June 15th. Washington Post reports that Donald Trump rejected efforts by his lawyers to cut a deal with the Justice Department. The Post writes that the former president was not interested in negotiations to avoid his second arrest in just 10 weeks. The Manhattan District Attorney expected to formally announce the indictment of Daniel Penny in a matter of hours. Retired Marine is charged with holding a homeless man in a fatal chokehold last month on a New York City subway. Another Republican from Florida running for president, the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, officially filing his 2024 paperwork. And will we finally see all those sneaky fees the next time you buy a concert ticket? Will they show you the fees up front? This, a promise from President Biden. He's been making it for months. Well, he's expected to deliver on it today. And from driving Ubers to driving golf balls, 43-year-old Barry Henson set for a first major appearance today after qualifying for the U.S. Open. He taxied 3,000 riders around Southern California, earning a 4.99 rating, almost perfect. And today he gets to tee off in his backyard at the Los Angeles Country Club. I love that story. Mm -hmm. CNN This Morning starts right now. But here is where we begin with really striking reporting from The Washington Post. Apparently, former President Donald Trump's lawyer, one of them, Chris Kyes, wanted to strike a deal with the Justice Department to try to avoid charges, to try to avoid getting to this point in the classified documents case. The Post reports that the former president refused, and now he's in the legal fight of his political life, facing potential prison time if convicted. Here's what The Post found that Trump's lawyer, Chris Kyes, wanted to quietly reach out to the Justice Department and negotiate a settlement back in the fall. This is, of course, after the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago in August and found more than 100 classified documents. Kyes apparently wanted to, quote, take down the temperature and to try to make a promise to the federal government that Trump would return all of the documents that he might have. The issue, though, the former president reportedly wasn't interested. CNN spoke to sources close to Trump's legal team who are casting doubt that this was actually a real opportunity to prevent an indictment. Trump's former fixer Michael Cohen weighed in on The Washington Post reporting last night right here on CNN. Donald's position is never to settle, ever, because he thinks it's a sign of weakness. Unfortunately, he didn't have anybody around him to guide him properly. He's like a petulant child that just keeps sticking their finger into an electric socket. And then you keep saying, don't do it. You don't want to do it. You don't want to do it. But nevertheless, he's going to do it anyway, because in his mind, he knows better. We are also hearing from Attorney General Merrick Garland speaking out for the first time since Donald Trump's indictment. CNN political correspondent Sarah Sarah Murray, sorry, Sarah, joining us now. So Garland in speaking out, defending, perhaps not surprisingly, the special counsel here, Jack Smith. 
Yeah, I mean, not surprising to hear Merrick Garland defending Jack Smith, but frankly, a little surprising to hear from Merrick Garland at all. We really have not heard him uh, very much at all weighing in on this investigation. And of course, that's by design. The Justice Department has made very clear that this is Jack Smith's I I case, you know, that there are regulations that are guiding this. He is still accountable to the attorney general. But the attorney general, now that Joe Biden is a candidate for president, Donald Trump is a candidate for president, wants to take himself out of this and leave the decisions to Jack Smith. Here is what Merrick Garland had to say. As I said when I pointed uh, Mr. Smith, I did so because it underscores the Justice Department's commitment to both independence and accountability. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. He has assembled a group of experienced and talented prosecutors and agents who share his commitment to integrity and the rule of law. Now, Garland also said the Justice Department is committed to ensuring there are no acts of violence surrounding this Trump classified documents case. Obviously, we saw in the run up to Miami a lot of concern that there could have been um, some kind of unrest outside of that courthouse. You know, that mostly didn't materialize other than that one gentleman who made a run for the motorcade guys. Yeah. So Jim Jordan, Congressman Jim Jordan, has uh, been threatening to subpoena Jack Smith for a long time. I just wonder, Sarah, what would that look like? Do you think it's really going to happen? You know, I think that it, Jim Jordan could certainly go that route. We have seen him be very aggressive with his subpoena power to date, so I don't necessarily know that he would hesitate, but I also don't know that it would get him very far. I mean, Jack Smith has a very credible case to make that he's in the middle of an ongoing investigation, and the Justice Department has very clear guidelines that they're not going to share information about ongoing criminal investigations. I mean, that's the case with classified documents. That's the case when it comes to January 6th. And as we've seen from Garland and Jack Smith, these are both men who are trying to make their case through the court filings, not through their public comments. So I think even if Jim Jordan did decide to move forward with a subpoena, it's unlikely he would be able to get the material he's seeking, at least anytime soon. Sarah, thanks very much for the reporting. We miss you. you she was at the table with us for <laughs> I the know. last She had moved to New York miss, for part of I the week. I present. Thanks, Sarah. Let's bring in Ellie Honig and Eralos. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Uh, so let's actually start with this Washington Post reporting because I'm totally fascinated by it. Of course, Josh Dossie and Jacqueline did a great job reporting, as they always do. My question to you, Ellie, given your experience uh, as federal prosecutor, would DOJ have agreed to something like that? Because this reporting is that Chris Kyes wanted to convince the president right. to do it. That doesn't mean that the Justice Department would say yes. And by the way, if they said yes, would it have to include an admission of wrongdoing? Right, I agree. So. I think the timing is really crucial here. I think had this been done early enough in the process, clearly DOJ and the archives would have been fine you with a non- Before the search? Before the search, well before the search, early on in the process. We know, actually, DOJ would have been fine with a non-criminal resolution where you don't even have to take a guilty plea because nothing is charged in here up until the point of the subpoena, which is about a year and a half into the negotiations. The documents that Trump and his team turned over which was those 15 boxes before things got really bad, none of those documents are charged in this indictment. So I do think if a good lawyer had gotten to Donald Trump early and if Donald Trump was receptive to the advice, which is a whole separate question, and gone to archives and said, look, he has these documents, we're going to deal with you, we're gonna show you all of them, you take what you need, we'll work this out, I think we absolutely would have avoided this indictment. But I do agree with you, when you get to last summer, we've had the subpoena, we have the search warrant, 
By then, I think DOJ would have appreciated an approach, but I'm not sure they would have accepted a, we'll just take the documents. I think at a certain point, you say, okay, fine, we can work on a resolution, but this has to involve a guilty plea. And I do agree with Michael Cohen. No way Donald Trump's ever taken a guilty plea. I think that's the bottom line, right? It's perhaps not so interesting, fantastic reporting, but not at all surprising that Donald Trump would maybe not want to go that route because that is certainly not what he's done in the past. That is not his style. That is uh, started in his commercial life. He certainly carried it over into his political life. He does not settle. Uh, on the other hand, I think we also might start to see a little bit of the motive behind a lot of this stuff, because people have been asking pretty consistently, why didn't he just give the documents back? Yeah. He's in all of this hot water. It's clear that the, the walls were closing in. He had the documents. He knew he had the documents. Why not just give them back? In at least one of the interviews with somebody on another network, he talked something about uh, in, in the Nixon era, saying that, well, Nixon got $18 million from the federal government for his papers. And all of this is before the modern regime. This is before the passage of the Presidential Records Act, which was specifically passed in response to the questions that were raised by the Nixon White House about who owned the tapes, who owned the papers and so forth. And so I think he might have been trying to hang on to this stuff and refusing to settle as just kind of treating it like one more deal. I'll hang on longer than anybody thinks. I'll exasperate everybody, and then I'll put a number on the table. There was just so many off-ramps to avoid this indictment. There were so many moments in time you can go back and almost graph them out and say, if he had just come to his senses and just <laughs> taken the easy way out and done what good lawyers would have told him to do, we never would have had this. Thank you, Ellie. Is this, is this the end of Jack... In this probe, not in the January 6th probe, right. is this the end of Jack Smith's <laughs> um, charges or not? Because I thought, I thought the piece in The Atlantic by... Um, Two folks, one of them, Andrew Weissman, who served as special counsel to Rob, Robert Mueller. Yeah. And Ryan Goodman. Uh, yeah, and Ryan it's Goodman. so yeah. interesting because they say, well, this, this um, indictment doesn't include dissemination of information, right. which is what's alleged that he did at Bedminster, New Jersey, with a classified document about Iran, et cetera. Yeah. Do you, do you think Jack Smith would have put it all together in this, or do you think more could be to come? I guess you'd have to convene. There's venue, maybe issues. Yeah with that New Jersey, but what do you think? I think it's an interesting and smart piece and hypothesis by Ryan Goodman and and Andrew Weissman. I I see a couple of reasons that make me doubt that it's actually true. We don't know. Number one, it's not entirely clear from this indictment that Donald Trump actually did possess classified documents in Bedminster. Yes, he's talking about them. He's sort of referring, he's rustling papers. We haven't seen the, the, no one knows. Not only have we not seen the document, DOJ hasn't seen the document. That's what I mean. Right. Unless they have it or find it, I don't see a way to charge dissemination. The other thing is, just traditionally, there's no written rule on this, but it's good practice as a prosecutor, fair practice. Bring your charges when you have them. You don't, we don't play games. You don't say, well, we have a more serious charge. Let's hold it back. And this is sort of one of the theories of the article. It's gamesmanship. They're waiting to see if something bad happens in Florida. Then they're going to drop this. That's not how you're taught to do things if you're prosecuting the right way. And especially in today's day and age, wouldn't that make it even worse? As much as Merrick Garland is saying, hey, look, this shows our independence, you know, this shows our commitment to accountability. The reality is this is being seen as politicized in this country, whether it has been or not. And if you wait and then bring another charge in New Jersey, that's not going to sit well. And look, let's keep in mind, Jack Smith's got a whole ton of January 6th work to be done. You know, I mean, he's got a, a whole other set of facts and witnesses and evidence and, and information that he's going to have to uh, churn through. I don't think he's going to, like, you know, sort of hold one back and, you know, think about a change of venue. And, you know, uh, that would assume, and I'm, I don't know what the author's motives were. I think it was an interesting kind of speculation. But, 
you know, if, if the idea is that, you know, this is like Captain Ahab going after Moby Dick, that we're going to we're going to do whatever it takes to bring down Trump, which is, of course, what the defendant keeps saying, then you might get something along those lines. But I, I don't get that vibe from from Jack Smith. He seems very straight ahead. One of their arguments was that you might have a better, uh, more favorable jury pool mm-hmm. to a conviction. in New Jersey. Know. Those Jersey folks wouldn't. are unpredictable. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but that isn't why you should go That's after something. Sure. You should go after something. <laughs> exactly right. Because of you know, the merits. Thanks, guys. Well, Grand Jury has indicted a Marine veteran who held a homeless man in a deadly chokehold on the New York City subway. We're going to take a look at the potential case against him. And a group of men in their 60s with alleged ties to the mob and a history of bank robbings, killings, and jailbreaks are now accused of a jewelry heist right here in New York City. The details of this wild case and how it all unfolded. By the way, 60s not old. A grand jury in New York has indicted a Marine veteran who put a homeless man in a chokehold, pinned him on the ground until he died on a New York City subway train. A source tells CNN Daniel Penny has been indicted on second-degree manslaughter charges. He's accused of killing Jordan Neely early last month. Witnesses say Neely got on the subway train and started acting erratically and, was, and screamed that he was ready to die. They say that Penny then went behind Neely, put him in this chokehold. CNN, of course, has reached out to Penny's attorneys about the indictment. Retired Marine previously said that he felt Neely was a threat and a danger, and he has said since that he would do the same if put in a similar situation. Back with us, Ellie Honig and Errol Lewis. Errol, I have to start with you. Your perspective on this, I think, has been so important. I mean, we'll, we'll get to the charges in a moment, Errol, uh, uh, Ellie, but yeah. the, the, the fact that this happened in New York City shows a failure on so many levels to treat and help Jordan Neely. That's right. Jordan Neely had been in and out of the system. There had been multiple attempts to get him the treatment that he so desperately needed. And uh, the the net had big holes in it. Uh, in some ways, the net didn't quite exist. But yeah. he was on a list of the top 50 people. Now, in a city of 8 million, they said these 50 people have serious multiple problems. Uh, and we have Need to... Need our help. Right. We have, to, we have to help them. Somehow, it didn't happen. And so now... Uh, there's there's that story. And then laid on top of it, of course, is this sort of criminal justice story about is the city so disorderly? Is crime, you know, crime running out of control to the point where you have vigilantes and so forth? And some people are really seeing it through that lens. Uh, it's really, really unfortunate because, you know, th- the kid clearly deserved better than what this city did for him and did to him. Uh, it's now a compounded tragedy. And there's a lot of political energy now lining up behind the idea that Daniel Penny is either a hero or a political victim or someone to be emulated. It's, it's really, it, it kind of compounds the tragedy in a lot of ways. How much does that conversation that's being had and these very clear camps that have sprung up not just in New York City, but beyond. Yeah. How does that complicate things for this case, Ellie? Well, it's such a tragic story. It's a New York story in a lot of ways. And, and I think it's what it's really going to complicate is your jury pool. Because you're going to be picking a pool of jurors who probably take the subway, may even totally. take the subway to the courthouse mm-hmm. that day. Um, legally, this is going to be really tricky. I, I have no idea how this one will come out if and when it's ever tried. Because there's two issues. One is... Did Mr. Penny act in self-defense or defense of another? We always think of defense of oneself, but if someone's attacking Errol, I have the right to stop them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have to perceive reasonably that the person poses a threat to the other, to the other person or your own life or limb, basically. Right. And he um, didn't have a weapon. No weapon. 
right? Didn't but, punch anyone. And, and that's why the testimony from the bystanders, what exactly was he doing and saying how much of a threat was he? And then the second part of it is this manslaughter charge. Prosecutors have to prove that he acted recklessly, that Penny acted recklessly. And that's going to get into the nuance of how long did he hold him in that chokehold? How long was, uh, was Mr. Neely non-responsive? How long was he quiet? Could other, did others say anything to him? So it's going to be a difficult, wrenching trial, I think, for all involved. Yeah, it absolutely is. We're going to set that one aside for a minute. Another story. Uh, this one feels a little bit more like a Hollywood movie. Prosecutors charging four men in their 60s in two brazen jewel heists. This also happening in New York City. So the robberies together amount to about $2 million worth of jewelry. The New York Times is reporting the men have mob ties, extensive criminal histories. In fact, the Fed say the robberies, which happened in January and May of this year, the suspects, as you see in these pictures here, accused of dressing up as construction workers to blend in, perhaps on those busy New York City streets. Images from the indictment uh, show them, you see there, as we mentioned, those bright orange, yellow construction jackets, also waving a gun. There's another image to show you here. You see a suspect there wearing a hard hat. They say the men held employees at these jewelry areas, jewelry uh, stores that they were robbing at gunpoint and then ran off with the jewelry. Among the stolen jewels, this one's hard to hide, by the way, a 73-carat diamond necklace. You're not just wearing that to coffee. <laughs> Um, so there's a lot in here. A lot of the discussion uh, amongst the show team was, and in the article in which one Ellie Honig is quoted, I might add, Ooh, was sort of about the age and that this was still happening. You made some really interesting points about how things work with the alleged mob. So the reporter on this piece, Ed Shanahan from the New York Times, called me because he knew I used to be a mob prosecutor and said, well, how have these guys, these mobsters gotten so old? And I said, Ed, they've always been old. Uh, and here's why. First of all, there's no retirement from the mob. They don't have a mob pension plan. You're in no it. No 401k. No, no, you're, you're, you're in it till you die. I, there's guys doing life in prison. They're still counted as members of the mob. And you can't, by the way, replace them until they die. The other thing is, there's no such thing as a mob prodigy, right? There's no such thing as LeBron James. You see him play in high school. You go, oh my God, he's going to be in the NBA next year. You can't get made in the mob until you're, I mean, the youngest I ever saw was maybe 45, 50. There are, there were a couple Nepo babies, sons of powerful mobsters, mm -hmm. John Gotti Jr., who got made much earlier. But other than that, they have Nepo babies in the mob. Other than that, you have to be 45 or 50. Um, and I did a case, the first mob case I was ever on, where 20 or so members of the Genovese family, I think we may have the, uh, the write-up on it, where the average age was 70, 75 years old. There you go. This is the coverage from the New York Senior Daily News. Moment. They had fun with it. Senior moment. And then below that, it says old fellas. Of course, they got to make the pun. Right. Um, and this, the scene at this um, arraignment and the booking was, you can see on the right there is Matty the horse Ionello carrying a cane. He was mid-80s at the time, boss of the Genovese family. The guy next to him is Julius Spike Bernstein, also in his 80s at the time. So uh, these guys do not age out of the mafia. It's, it truly is until death. I, I, I love these kind of stories, actually, for the same reason I like Goodfellas, is that, you know, in contrast to sort of the Hollywood kind of romantic, you know, version of, of the mob that you'd see with the, the, the first two Godfathers and all of this kind of stuff, it's like, no, it's really a pretty crummy life. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, you know, you're, you're dealing with people who are not honest, who are not bright, who are telling you to do all kinds of things that are going to get you in a lot of trouble. And what's waiting at the end of all of this stuff? You don't retire on some beach, no. you know, surrounded by models and, you know, a, a, a bunch of a, a piles of money. You are, like, trying to sort of, you know, pull off some kind of two-bit heist <laughs> in the middle of Midtown, hoping that you can run out with a 73-carat, you know, yeah. uh, a piece of jewelry. I mean, 
smash and grab stuff as if you were 19 years old. It's unbelievable. It's a life. It's, it's a, a life. choosing. I didn't know what Nepo Babies was until our millennial producers told me like six It's everywhere. Ago. It's I even in the bottom. I, know. Yeah. I didn't know what it was. Ellie, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Daryl. The Federal Reserve pausing interest rates uh, in terms of the hikes for the first time in 15 months for now. Details on the central bank's plan to continue, though, its aggressive fight on inflation. That's more my kind of yeah, yeah. story. That's where I'm yeah. out. See, I like a good mob story. <laughs> More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, a very disturbing new report out this morning from the CDC. Uh, finds that young people are dying by suicide and homicide at rates that we haven't seen in decades. Our medical correspondent, Meg Terrell, joins us now. We've known that this is such a problem and the numbers bear it out. Yeah, they really do. I mean, in both of these cases, if you look at homicides and suicides, the CDC looked at data for kids between ages 10 and young adults 24 uh, through 2021. And the trends really bear out what we have been seeing in the data more broadly. For homicides, the rates are now the highest we've seen since 1997. For suicides, the rates are the highest we've seen since the data go back to 1968 for this overall group. And what you see there is that the, the numbers have actually come together and homicides took a big jump during during the pandemic, 2019 to 2020. Uh, that's something that we saw more broadly, up more than 30% the rate. Uh, for suicides, we really saw an increase over the last decade, kind of rising steadily, 62% for the group overall. So this is something that mental health experts are extremely concerned about, public health experts more broadly. And it's also interesting, too, as we look at this and we see the numbers, the questions about, so how do, how do we do something here? I mean, is there, is there a way to stop this, to bring those numbers down? Yeah, I mean, so there are kind of two different issues. When you look at the suicide rates, of course, there's a huge focus on children's mental health right now. This is something the American Medical Association just this week uh, came out and said is a top priority to increasing access to care because not enough kids actually get mental health care. Same with adults. Uh, there aren't enough people in the workforce to even treat everybody. So this is something they're really focused on. In terms of homicides, I mean, it's a lot of gun homicides in this country, particularly for the older uh, kids in this population, particularly for young black boys. That's what they see the majority of kids the number here. one killer of children in America now. Yeah. And so th these are issues that are being focused health. on. But seeing these numbers, I mean, really solidifies how big of a problem this is in the U.S. Yeah, it absolutely does. And, and to Poppy's point, one in five, nearly one in five childhood deaths in 2021 mm -hmm. had to do with firearms. We have talked so much over the last several years about gun deaths, about gun violence. The American Medical Association back in 2016 declared this a public health emergency. Any doctor you speak to, any emergency room doctor will talk to you about why this is such an urgent issue. And yet there is very, not only very little action, but not as much discussion. I think a lot of people would argue thoughtful discussion. Errol, do you think these numbers, specifically when we talk about those firearms, could change any of that? The numbers themselves won't, but uh, politics will. I mean, political movement will. And I don't mean what we do at the ballot box, although that, of course, is important. But, you know, I talked with uh, Chris Murphy, who mm -hmm. from uh, Connecticut, who uh, of course, has a lot to say about this because Sandy Hook happened in his district. Um, and he pointed out to me that it's a real mistake for us in the media or anywhere else to get too pessimistic about this, that you have, you know, um, you, you have all kinds of grassroots activity that's out there that would have been unthinkable even just a generation ago. 
Uh, I get emails almost every day. You know, um, when you think about the, the kids who organized out of Parkland mm-hmm. and the fact that they've stayed active politically and they've, the laws they've organized. in Florida. It, it, you know, so I, this is a case where I think, as with many social movements, change happens gradually and then suddenly. So we're still in the gradual stage. And that includes a lot of fact-finding, a lot of fact-sharing. That includes uh, taking some of these tools that I'm convinced contribute to a lot of, of the suicides and a lot of the violence. You take uh, your TikToks and your social media, you can turn those tools around and start to propagate other sorts of messages about what's necessary, about who did what, about which politicians either need to be challenged or replaced or informed, or, or maybe we just wait till they leave. Uh, but one way or another, I think we've got to sort of put as much energy as possible mm-hmm. behind pushing back against this. It's not simply a medical issue. It's not mm-hmm. simply an epidemic. It's the kind of epidemic where, just like with COVID, we can individually fight back and everybody can find something useful to do in this broad movement. Mike, thank you very, very much. If you or someone you know or love are struggling with suicidal thoughts, you can call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline for help. The number is 988. They are available 24 hours a day. Ahead, buying concert tickets. Hopefully, we'll get a little less frustrating. Still just as expensive, though, but yeah. we'll have details on <laughs> President Biden's big announcement today about all those fees and transparency next. Plus this. How many Russians have you killed in this war? Uh, A covert group of Ukrainian soldiers fighting in Bakhmut claims their special operation is demoralizing Russian troops. We have the exclusive video ahead. We have to get inflation down to 2% and we will. And we just don't see that yet. So hence you see today's policy decision. For the first time in 15 months, the Federal Reserve has decided not to hike interest rates. The central bank has been relentlessly raising them to try to fight this high inflation, despite the Powell pause, as our chief business correspondent has <laughs> dubbed it. Chairman Jerome Powell did signal there will be more hikes to come later in the year. Stocks mix, closed mix yesterday after the Fed decision led to a bit of a volatile trading session. Here with us, our chief business correspondent, Christy Romans. At the top of call the, it a rate rest? Rate rest. Rate no, rest. Like the power pause you know, better. it's good have options. The top of the journal today, but signals more. I think that's yeah. what the market was looking at yesterday and trying to figure out. So I think we've entered a new phase here. The Fed had been aggressively raising interest rates over and over and now has paused to give it some time to assess how well it's been doing. But the Fed chief was very clear. There probably will be more rate hikes ahead because inflation just hasn't come down to the levels that they wanted. You heard in that bite, he said, in that sound bite where he said 2%. I can show you the charts from this week, the positive inflation news from this week. Um, you don't have 2% CPI. You're still double that. PPI yesterday fell to 1.1%, but some of the core numbers that he's looking at are still a little higher. So you can see inflation has moderated, Mm -hmm. but he's worried that parts of the inflation story are sticky, as economists say, and will be harder harder to, to root out. So a pause after 10 rate hikes. What it means for consumers is, you know, credit card rates probably won't rise from here. Uh, mortgage rates may be stabilized here. Uh, all of those rates that are based on, on the Fed, federal uh, funds rate, they're not, they're not going to rise for now, but they probably will rise um, later on this year. Okay, so it is. So it's an official pause, right? Pause. So as we take, maybe folks take advantage of that, take a little bit of a breath. We also wanted to, to look at this story. So we're expecting this morning the White House will announce that two major ticketing companies are now going to start showing you the fees that you pay up front. 
what does this actually do for me? Does it get me even more angry because I realize, oh, really, it's eight dollars for the convenience of sending me a link to my ticket? So the idea is, if it's upfront, it means before you you, you purchase, you know exactly how much it's mm-hmm. going to cost. And so this is Live Nation and Ticketmaster will allow consumers to see the fees upfront. This is part of a, a White House effort to really acknowledge that people feel nickel and dimed yeah. and do what they can to put pressure on companies and industries to do something about it. This is the Junk Fee Protection Act, which you just saw on your screen. That is a proposed legislation from the White House that would really give people much more clarity about what they're paying. For example, um, you know, excessive online concert fees, you'd be able to, it would prohibit that, quite frankly. Fees for sitting together on flights, which drives all of us parents here crazy. Um, and then early termination fees for TV, phone, and internet services. There are huge fees if you cut those contracts early. And then there are a lot of surprise resort and destination fees that drive people nuts that you might not even know about until you've already, you know, clicked buy. And so just acknowledging that people feel nickel and dime and trying to do what they can about it. Yeah, so we definitely do not like to be ripped off, but I guess we at least want to know about it (laughs) if we're being ripped off. Um, This strikes me as smart politics and lawful. I mean, people say, well, why not just, why can't they just pass a law getting rid of these fees? That would never fly. That's not constitutional. That's an overstep. But this stuff is spreading, I think. I mean, it started with Ticketmaster, right? Right. When you click on four tickets to the baseball game and then you go into your car, all of a sudden, why is it 40% more and you see all the... But it's it's more and more now. Like I ordered pickup. I didn't. They weren't bringing to me. I was going to get it from a restaurant near me the other day, and there was a convenience fee. I'm coming to you to get it. But very, as you said, Christine, we're seeing this spread. I think more and more of these places are saying if we can pass costs onto consumers, charge two bucks on a convenience fee, a delivery fee, that fee. So good for the White House, I think, for at least taking this step towards transparency and, and for letting us know. And it'll be interesting to see whether consumers pick up on that if they are frustrated by being more vocal about it. Yeah, maybe, maybe it changes consumer behavior and the, cu- and the companies have to start cutting some of those fees. That would be an or ideal Or at least world. tell us. That would be the ideal world. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. A Facebook whistleblower who leaked thousands of pages of research in 2021 exposing the dark side of social media algorithms is out with a new memoir. Frances Haugen is here with us live to talk about what her life has been like, not only since speaking out, but also about social media. What does it mean today? Why is it so dangerous? Plus, Uber driver Barry Henson finally getting his big break. He'll tee off in Los Angeles today, making his first major appearance at the U.S. Open. After ranking 444th in the world, the 43-year-old has been shuttling people around Southern California for the past seven years, all while pursuing his passion for golf. I've got 3,000 rides, and I'm a 4.99 Uber-rated driver, which I love, and I'm, I feel, you know, I, I take pride in that. I like to play games with my with my uh, with my passengers when they come in. I usually let them ask me questions to find out what I really do, and I can only answer yes or no. And that ends up turning into be fun because they go down like this weird road of entertainment business and and uh, and being in the movies or whatever it might be. Like Barry Henson has not forgotten his long road to success. Such a great story. I saw Facebook repeatedly encounter conflicts between its own profits and our safety. Facebook consistently resolved these conflicts in favor of its own profits. The result has been more division, more harm, more lies, more threats, and more combat. In some cases, this, dis- this dangerous online talk has led to actual violence that harms and even kills people. 
That, of course, is Francis Haugen, the former Facebook employee turned whistleblower who triggered some of the most intense scrutiny in the company's history. She testified before Congress in 2021, shortly after thousands of pages of internal documents were released, which showed the company knew its platforms were being used to spread hate, violence and misinformation. In the nearly two years since Haugen came forward, Meta, Facebook's parent company, has been hit with lawsuits from state, federal and international regulators. Well, now Haugen is sharing more of her story in The Power of One, how I found the strength to tell the truth and why I blew the whistle on Facebook. She joins us now. Now, we did, we should point out, we did reach out uh, to Meta, to Facebook about the book um, ahead of the interview. They declined to comment. It's really nice to have you here with us in the studio. And it's such an interesting read and I think insight into how you came to this decision, mm. why you felt it was so important. Um, and yet since that moment, mm-hmm. we talked about the lawsuits that have been filed, but then we also have the Surgeon General warning. It's just, amazing. Just recently, you said in a recent yeah. interview you were blindsided. I was totally blindsided. Do you think the tide has turned, right? That public mm. opinion has really shifted since your testimony and what it revealed? So for context for listeners at home, there have been very few Surgeon General advisories in the last six years. Like we're talking on the order of 10, 15. They're for things like cigarettes cause cancer, seatbelts save lives, breastfeeding is good for kids. You know, things that we say duh to today. Um, but before those advisories came out, there was ambiguity. Like part, they, the advisories acted like a period at the end of the sentence. And historically, within two to three years after one of those advisories, we see some kind of big change. So at least when it comes to kids and mental health, I'm very optimistic that we're going to see something big in the next, say, two to three years. The, the book is such an important read, and, and you yeah. wrote on it. It's the middle of the book, page 107. Meaningful change, real change happens slowly. The things that often, most often block us from real change is the fear that we're not being successful fast enough. It was yeah. Mark Benioff, the founder of Salesforce, who years ago said Facebook is a cigarette. Do you remember that? Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and looking at the Surgeon General, it's yeah. important, but they don't have enforcement power. Yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. They, they don't, so the yeah. question is, having been on Capitol Hill and testifying yeah. before Congress, do you believe that they mm-hmm. will enforce some of these changes to protect people? So the nature of basically all societal problems is there's some finite number of kids that we're willing to tolerate being harmed. You know, we put eight-year-olds in car seats, eight-year-olds, because it saves like 60 kids a year. Uh, but when it comes to things like guns, we're willing to tolerate many, many more kids being harmed. I think the situation with social media is it is getting so, uh, so problematic, so egregious, so many kids are being hurt, that we're, we're getting close to a tipping point where we're not willing to tolerate that harm anymore. Do you think, you know if a child dies in a car who wasn't in a car yeah, seat. Yeah, totally. The, the question is, it's harder to measure, mm-hmm. did my child commit suicide yeah. because of being bullied on social media, right? And so yeah. it, that, that makes it, what, more difficult? 100%. That's part of why things have gone as bad as they have. One of the things I try to explain in this book is why Facebook and social media are significantly more opaque than other things that we take for granted, like, say, Google, mm-hmm. right? I know you're not going to believe this. You but started if, but working you there. at Google, too. We well, should I say, did. Yeah. I did. Um, so imagine, imagine you and I sat down together for three weeks. I know this is going to sound impossible. You could learn enough programming that we could ask basic account- accountability questions about Google. If we want to do the same thing for Facebook, this is like accountability 101, basic questions, mm-hmm. it would require us... Uh, recruiting 20,000 people and convincing them to s- install uh, software on their phones or computers so we can get the same level of transparency, right? There's a huge difference when we all see the same thing versus when we each individually see a different thing. Right, so it's much harder to see. It's much harder, harder to, to break see. through that mm-hmm. wall. Only Facebook can do it. 
Has anything changed in terms of the incentive that Facebook as a company has? Yeah, great question. So a big thing did change last year, which a lot of Americans aren't aware of, which is Europe passed something called the Digital Services Act. And the Digital Services Act on a really basic level says, hey, if you know there's a danger, you have to tell us because only you know. And if we want to ask a question, you have to answer it, which sounds so basic. It does. Right? That's a law we could pass in the United States, right? Yeah. Well, it um, follows GDPR, yeah. too. Yeah. It falls on G- it's, it builds on the legacy of GDPR, which protects Americans, yeah. too. And so I think that is actually going to be really pivotal in the next year because it goes into enforcement this year, which means we're going to be able to start asking questions. And Facebook will know someone's watching. The Washington Post, in their mm-hmm. book review of your book, it was glowing. But this is what struck me most. But what really makes the book worth reading is the broader wisdom in her story and the absence of the self-importance implied by the book's unfortunate title. I know. <laughs> Actually, can I tell you a fun fact? This is, this is breaking news. No one's heard it yet. The, the title was written with GDP3. Like, oh, you know, really? Like the publisher didn't like the title I suggested originally, and like I was being petulant. And so I was like, GDP, uh, chat GPT, name my book. AI wrote AI. <laughs> AI wrote the title of your book. <laughs> it's a good Which title. Because titling books are really hard. Um, I wanted um, Every Choice Matters, because I wanted it to be about agency, like Every Choice. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. Isn't, yeah. even in The Power of One, yeah. there's, there is a point in your book where you write, um, what will we build together if more people woke up to their own power? So yeah. The Power of One is really the power of many. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's the point of the last third, like third of the book is I had this moment with my manager where one day he, he was like, I'm really disappointed in you. And, and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm an overachiever. Like I was like devastated. Um, and, and I was waiting for him to be like, because you're late or whatever. And he said, because you weren't willing to tell me you were struggling. Right. Like we could have solved this problem together with if you had told it. me. If, if we had uh, if we'd done this, and this is at Facebook, this is a Facebook manager. And that's what's happening with Facebook is Facebook is afraid to admit they're struggling. And if they opened up, we could all work, you know, academics, researchers could work together to solve these problems. We'll Thank see, you. See if that changes. Yeah, my pleasure. Congratulations Thank you. on the book. Great to meet you. Thank Great you. to have you at the table. Happy to be here. The book, named by AI, as we now know. <laughs> the Power of One, How I yeah. Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why I Blew the Whistle on Facebook. It is available now. Yeah. Thank you. Today, closing arguments set to begin in the Pittsburgh synagogue mass shooting trial after 11 days of emotional witness testimony, how one survivor described having to play dead as her 97-year-old mother was killed in this attack. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. In just a few hours, closing arguments will get underway in the trial of a man accused of killing 11 people in 2018 at the Tree of Life Synagogue. Both sides rested their cases yesterday in Pittsburgh after weeks of emotional testimony from 60 witnesses. Prosecutors are calling for the death penalty for that man accused of the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in the history of the United States. Danny Freeman has been following this trial from jury selection. He joins us now in the defense. Interestingly, Danny didn't call a single witness. Good morning, Poppy. That's right. The defense did not call a single witness, and they really only cross-examined a handful of prosecution witnesses. But remember, this is still just the guilt phase of the trial, and the defense team has never contested that 50-year-old Robert Bowers was the one who went in that synagogue almost five years ago and killed 11 Jewish worshipers. The defense really has been focused more on the upcoming death penalty phase if Mr. Bowers is convicted. But before I want to get to that, I want to get to the latest right here from Pittsburgh. Yesterday, we heard from prosecution witness number 60, Andrea Wedner. Now, Wedner survived the shooting, but her 97-year-old mother, Rose Malinger, did not. Andrea described being filled with, uh, excuse me, being 
filled with terror. It was indescribable. We thought we were going to die. Now, Andrea and her mother held each other underneath a pew, but eventually Bowers did shoot them. Andrea said at that point she knew her mother Rose was going to die, but she still stayed with her mother because she did not want to leave her alone in that synagogue. I should say <clears throat> Andrea survived by, as you said earlier, staying still and essentially playing dead and eventually was rescued by first responders. But it's just one example of the numerous amount of really emotional and intense testimony that we've heard over the past 11 days. And it's not over yet. As you said, closing arguments expected to start in just a few moments. And after that, the trial goes to the jury. And Danny, Bobby, very, very quickly, Danny, will it be the jury that also decides on the death penalty or is that a judge bench decision? No, it will also be decided by the jury. They're going to stay on. They've already been doing this case for a number of weeks, and they're going to continue okay. through the summer. We appreciate Bobby. it, Danny Freeman, for your coverage throughout this trial. Thank you very much. CNN This Morning continues now. Donald Trump rejected efforts by his lawyers to cut a deal with the Justice Department. Donald's position is never to settle, ever. Attorney General Merrick Garland is weighing in, defending the man who was running it. He has assembled a group who share his commitment to integrity and the rule of law. Manhattan grand jury indictment announced against Marine veteran Daniel Penny on second-degree manslaughter charges. Was it reasonable for him to believe that this man was going to cause harm to himself or to someone else? Do you put Daniel Penny on the stand? What was in his mind? New video from Ukraine's front lines as the country's military engages in, quote, extremely fierce fighting. Most of these Russian soldiers don't want to be there. Ukrainians are saying they believe they can be successful, but they do also acknowledge it's going to be a really tough battle. Yet another Republican from Florida is running for president. The mayor of Miami officially filing his 2024 paperwork. A future that confronts our enemies and doesn't project weakness and incompetence. We need to get behind those issues again and stop letting Donald Trump dictate what our message is going to be. can't get down on yourself. Coming up in that situation, I was so glad I was going to get the opportunity to come through. To go back and see if he was going to catch it. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. We are so glad you're with us on this Thursday. It is 7 a.m. here on the East Coast. We begin. Nice to be with you this morning. With you. A lot happening, including uh, this really caught our eye. New reporting from the Washington Post that Donald Trump rejected his lawyer's advice to strike a deal with the Justice Department to avoid charges in the classified documents case. So the Post is reporting here that Trump attorney Chris Keis wanted to negotiate a settlement with the DOJ back in the fall. Keep in mind, as you're looking at the timeline here, this is after the FBI had searched Mar-a-Lago, found a trove of highly sensitive documents, including nuclear secrets. Trump apparently, though, was not interested. CNN spoke to sources close to the former president's legal team who are casting doubt that there was actually a real opportunity to make a deal and prevent an indictment. Instead of listening to his lawyer, CNN and the Post report that Trump has been following advice from Tom Fitton. He is the head of the conservative group Judicial Watch. Since early last year, he's been talking to the former president about documents, urging him not to return them. He has been citing the so-called Clinton socks drawer case. It is a 2012 case. Uh, it's more than a decade ago. It was brought by his own group, Judicial Watch, Watch, and Fitton tweets about it a lot. His group sued to get access to the audio tapes that Bill Clinton did with a historian that he reportedly stashed in his sock drawer. Much different set of facts, but Trump is still pushing it. 
I had every right to have these documents. The crucial legal precedent is laid out in the most important case ever on this subject, known as the Clinton Sox case. Joining us now, CNN political commentator Errol Lewis and former Republican congressman of Texas, Will Hurd. It's good to have you with us still, Errol. Good to welcome you to the table. Good morning. Uh, you read this Washington Post reporting? Yeah. I thought it was really uh, remarkable reporting. My question, though, is do, do you believe that if the president had listened to Chris Kaiser's lawyer and they had gone to the Justice Department and said, look, let's settle this out, DOJ would have agreed to that? And also, would they have ever agreed to something without an admission of wrongdoing, at least? Well, I, I, let's take it a step further before this. When NARA, the National Administration for, I forget what the R stands it's for. It's so funny. It were like right? NARA, PRA, FRA. Sure. When they asked for the documents back, just give them back. And we wouldn't be in this position, right? If, if Donald Trump would have followed that law, it, we, we wouldn't be here. And, and yes, maybe there would have been an opportunity. Um, DOJ probably didn't want to prosecute this case because they knew the drama it was going to come into. But we're not shocked that Donald Trump would rather have a fight than, than follow the law. And, and to me, this is, this is crazy that so many people are defending him um, for doing this. And we wouldn't be in this position if he would have turned them back. We know that because when Mike Pence was found out had documents, he turned them all back. It was fine. None, the, the DOJ is not persecuting uh, Donald Trump on any of the documents that he actually did return. Mm -hmm. so, so all those 31 counts all those other are 31 from counts. the August search. The, the stuff that he, that he hid. Now, my question is, why is he trying to keep track of them? He could still have access to them. The question is how they were being stored. And when is Donald Trump going to tell us all the steps he took to prevent people from coming into his hotel and accessing those documents. It's very clear that Donald Trump knew he had classified information. He knew he had information that was so sensitive that the classification is classified. Right? There, there were several of those, those documents that had, where, where it said that there was a, in the classification line, um, they're, they're marked out, they're redacted, because the classification itself is classified. So he knew he had this stuff. He knew that that they were in places that were accessible by his members and by his staff. And when is Donald Trump going to tell us these are the steps I took to prevent the Chinese government, to prevent the Russians from trying to come in and bribing my members or bribing my staff in order to get access to us? Like those are the questions Donald Trump should be doing. And guess what? We wouldn't be in this position if he just gave the documents back. So what's interesting, though, is the, those are not the questions. Clearly, they're being addressed, right, to your point. I don't know if we'll ever if we'll ever hear those answers. They're also not the questions that are being raised by those who are supporting the president and saying this is ridiculous, this is nothing but politicized. Does this change anything? As we move forward, we got a little bit of time that we're going to be talking about this. Yeah, there's a, there's a real misinformation factor here. I watched the former president ranting and raving uh, from the, the front steps at Bedminster, and it was really disappointing to hear him talk about this Sox case because you go back and look at it. You know, at first, a lot of us are like, wait, he's talking about this thing? It's 10 years old. Judicial Watch, which is an advocacy organization, uh, tried to intervene and make the case that when President uh, Clinton spoke with a historian and then got a copy of the tapes, it's as if any of us as journalists, you know, talked with a public figure and then gave him a copy of the tape, that somehow became a public record that would be subject to all kinds of disclosure. 
It went to court. It was a dead loser. And they lost. And yet here they are still telling the former president this. And he's now propagating it out there. And you saw it spread all across social media. So now there are lots and lots of people, possibly thousands, dare we say even millions, who now somehow believe that a president, a former president, can take any record they but want. that's the point, right? And treat it as their personal property. That's exactly the point. But it's, a, putting you know, I mean, it, it really is striking because it is such a dead loser. It is dead on arrival when it makes it to court. And uh, un- unfortunately, you know, sort of confusion and falsehood are now being used, deployed as a political and legal strategy. I would not advise anybody to get on that train. That's going nowhere. I want you to listen to some of your uh, fellow Republicans, Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham, making their case on Fox. If this indictment is true, if what it says is actually the case, President Trump was incredibly reckless with our national security. I had hoped the Department of Justice would see its way clear to resolve these issues with the former president without moving forward with charges. This is a rogue agency that is thoroughly politicized. It is thoroughly weaponized. And I believe to indict a former president or sitting president, the threshold should be very, very high. If you're going to indict someone for having classified documents, how about Joe Biden and the classified documents he had stuck in just about every orifice of his body? He had stuck in a garage next to his old Corvette. Ted Cruz went to Harvard Law School. Ted Cruz knows what obstruction is. He knows the difference between what's going on right now with the special counsel uh, investigating Joe Biden's documents, still ongoing, Robert Herr, and what Jack Smith's team has brought here. But this is politics, no? No, it's, it's absolutely politics, right? And we can separate all of these issues. We can have a conversation about whether or not DOJ should be doing something or not be, not be doing something. That's a valid conversation. As a former CIA guy, right, you know, the CIA and the FBI has always gotten in, you know, loggerheads on issues, right? So, so we, we can talk about the role of federal law enforcement. All that stuff is, is valid. But we, we know these facts. We have audio. We know what the president was doing. Yes, you're innocent until proven guilty. And that's what's going to transpire uh, down in, in Miami over the next couple of months. But let's be honest. If, if the GOP is supposed to be the party of law and order, then we need to be the party of law and order when it comes to our own folks. We should actually hold our side uh, more accountable um, to, to a higher ethical standard than, than, than not. And so this is the part that's frustrating. And instead of talking about the problems with the Joe Biden administration and why his numbers are so low and one of the lowest approval ratings in, of a president at this time, instead of talking about that, we're having these debates about Donald Trump's baggage and continued drama. That's not good for the GOP. That's not good for us to potentially win elections. And ultimately, it's not good for the country. So why, why start defending someone who only cares about one thing? And, and Donald Trump doesn't care about the future of America. He cares about preventing himself and from going to prison and potentially dying in prison. It's so interesting because to that point, Errol, when he spoke at Bedminster after the arraignment, he essentially said, this is about you guys. Mm-hmm. This is about, he talked about Christians, 
pro-life groups. He talked about much of America saying, if they go after me like this, they're going to go after you like this. That's exactly right. I mean, that that is the, the, the Trump brand at this point. It's the political argument that he's making, which is that, you know, the people that you hate, I hate. The Your enemies are my enemies. Let's go have a fight, which is very different than talking about, you know, tax policy or what to do about education or what to to how to uh, wrap up the pandemic and have a more robust public health system or anything really more important that people actually care about. Why? Well, because it, it gets him a rise. He's 40, 50 points ahead of his nearest competitor in the polls. It seems to work. Uh, as the congressman points out, it, there's going to be a bill that comes due when the independents get into it, when uh, possible swing voters get into it. When you get to the general election phase, you'll end up where he ended up in 2020, which is in the loser's column. Can I just add on that? Right. Only 23% of the country votes in primaries. Okay. And so so we always talk about what's going to happen in the primary. Why does only 23% of the country vote in primaries? It's because 77% thinks all the things people are talking about is absolute nonsense. They're not interested in some of these things. Look, you know, the places I've been the last couple of days, Nobody's asking me about Donald Trump keeping, you know, classified documents next to the you? crapper. Uh, they're t- pardon my language. You um, know, it's 7, uh, 12 a.m. <laughs> <I'm watching laughs> Easy, you know, I'm getting worked up. What, you know. what are well, they well, look, you? You know what they're worried about? 65% of Americans are afraid that artificial intelligence yeah. and robots are going to take their jobs. They're worried about whether their kids are going to be able to have a, a good-paying job when they graduate from college. Recent graduates are concerned that why is their ability to make a starting salary less than their parents? These are the questions people care about. People are worried about, why can't I have my kids and grandkids playing in parks in some of our big cities because these, these city or, you cities, entities, and, and mayors can't figure out how to address homelessness in a compassionate yeah. way or, or deal with crime. Yeah. Right? These are the questions that people, that, 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 that folks that are worried yes. about putting food on the table, roof over their head, yes. and make sure that people are, are healthy, happy, yeah. and safe. Those are the things that we should be talking about. And, and again, as a politician, as a member of the GOP, if we start talking about those things, we have an opportunity to take it to, 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 to deal with the frustration that independents are feeling. The, the number of Democrats that don't want to see seven out of 10 Americans do not want to see Joe Biden on the election or, or, or on the ballot next year. Right. Those are the, that's the opportunity. Well, but I don't instead, want to see Trump on the ballot. Well, well, I, 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 amen true. to that. Look, I, I, I've said it. <laughs> And you, you have know, to I've, cut through the loudest voice here, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the other issue. Why are those things? Why are those things not being talked about? Because Donald Trump is sucking right. all the oxygen sure. out of the room. We have one more though Republican about to throw their hat sure. in the ring. So you've got Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, right, mm-hmm. filing paperwork. Mm-hmm. We're expecting that announcement to come. I guess the question is. This is getting increasingly busy here. This Republican field, the pool is quite full at this point, but apparently the water is very nice. Does that make it harder to have those conversations? So I actually don't think so, right? And I I recognize my perspective is unique for most people. Options are always better, okay? 
options are always better. Let's have a diversity of thought and ideas. Let's have a competition of ideas within the party. Now, that requires there being a competition. And unfortunately, too many people only talking about defending Donald Trump and wanting to uh, uh, say they're going to pardon him if something happens. Like That's insane to me. But but a, a competition, we should never be afraid of competition. Right. And, and so it, it, what happens is, can somebody articulate a vision for the country that inspires people to come out and make a decision on a particular day? I think that is what is ultimately missing. And, and, and the thing that I've learned in my decade or so in politics, what I call the professional political class, right? These are the pollsters, the people that run races. They always tell you to do the same thing over and over, right? And guess what? We get the same boring results every time. And so let's, let's do something different because the reality is we live in complicated times. Right? I, I love that in the lead up to this show, we're talking about this drone, right? And, and how the Ukrainians are being able to use new technology and warfare. This is game changer. What does this mean for conflict between China and Taiwan yeah, and us? These are all kinds of the questions that we should be having. What's so interesting? Are you running, by the way? Uh, I, I haven't made a decision, okay. but I got to make a decision. Sound like a candidate. Well, yes. I got to make a decision soon. <laughs> when will the decision, decision come? Soon. I, soon. Soon. What? Yeah. Come on. Well, look. What I, is you know, soon? Here's the thing. Um, uh, as, Before as Labor my, Day, there's so much as, about these issues. No, I, I do. Look, as you, you know, my, my beautiful wife is with me today, and you can tell her I, I do things on my own time. Yeah, I, I yeah. do. I do things on my own time. Okay. And, and when we're ready to make a decision, we'll, we'll make a decision. The, po- the point before we go that I wanted to make is I'm so glad you brought up AI. I was at a dinner with some CEOs last night, and this is what is number one on their mind, like some of the biggest Fortune 500 companies. They're thinking about that. They're thinking about the impact on jobs, the good, the bad, the ugly. But I think Congressman Hurd makes a great point, Errol. That is not what any of those Republican contenders or Joe Biden are talking most about. Yeah, I mean, look, let's let's give a little bit of credit to the political class, these uh, these pollsters and the, the consultants uh, who take so much money from candidates year <laughs> after year. Uh, they do stuff not because it doesn't work. They do it because it does work. And if, you know, working means winning that next primary, getting a bump in the polls, uh, putting out a message that'll get a lot of donors to give small amounts to you, all of the different things that candidates have to do. There may be something fundamentally broken with our system because we incentivize a lot of the wrong things, like saying whatever nonsense will get somebody to click on your email and give you $24 or whatever it is you're asking for. But that's where we are. Uh, you know, so it's we, our fault. Well, I mean, look, we have some responsibility. We're not donating, so it's not our fault. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have some responsibility. I mean, and, and you know, look, it, and, and it's something, look, we, we all know this just from the news business. Year after year, you, you go through the polls. What's the most important thing? People will say education. They'll say the economy and so forth. And then the minute you try to activate that and say, well, are you willing now to actually pay a couple of pennies more for your school's education? And people go and grab their pitchforks and their torches and they say, hell no. So, you know, we, we've got to, you know, and now is the, exactly the right time. We've got to tell these presidential candidates of whatever party exactly what it is we want. We have to insist that they pay attention to what it is we want and not what some pollster has told them is going to activate us. And then I think we have to adapt some of the same defensiveness that we take with with television commercials or anything else. And hold them to account, right? That's the other thing, right? Hold you to account in terms of what you ran on, what you talked about, what was the action. We're in big trouble because we went way over there. But stay with us. (laughs) More to come. As the congressman just mentioned, there's stunning video from the Wall Street Journal. And what it shows is a Russian soldier pleading with a Ukrainian drone to spare his life on the battlefield. This happened in Mahmoud. You can see him being chased by the drone 
dropping small bombs before he finally surrenders, begging for the bombardment to stop. We should state the Wall Street Journal interviewed and interviewed the captured soldier on May 19th in the presence of a guard, but we do not know whether he was speaking under duress. That's an important point. CNN also got an exclusive look at the front lines of the war with a special ops team of Ukrainian soldiers whose main focus is breaking Russian morale in Bakhmut. Our CNN's Sam Kiley is live in Kyiv, Ukraine, with more of his reporting this morning. Can you tell us, Sam, what the special ops team showed you? Well, Poppy, uh, one of the uh, campaigns that the Ukrainians have been w waging very effectively in the Wall Street Journal, Daily Mail also ran that story back in May, is propaganda. They are operating in the cyber realm on the minds of Russians and they're undermining the Russian will to fight on top of the ability of the Russians to have leaders that are alive long enough to give orders that maintain that will is something that they're combining with that cyber realm into the realm of the shadows. And this is what it looks like. A special forces night operation. The objective, to bring a special kind of misery to Russian troops. As they arrived alongside Ukrainian regulars, the Russians attacked. A night vision recording of a routine assault that the special forces needed to shrug off. How long did you spend under fire like this before you could move? And then what did you do? Electronic surveillance pinpointed their victims. First, they killed two paratroopers approaching on their left flank to get to the group's main targets, Russian commanders near Bakhmut. A sterile record of an all-too-gritty event in March. First, one officer is shot. Then another, down. He says radio intercepts revealed that the Russians lost two officers and five others to their sniper team that night. Formed when Russia invaded Ukraine last year, this team of experienced veterans works in a secret realm under the intelligence services. They're tasked with tactical work seeking strategic effect as Ukraine's counter-offensive takes shape. Here, using a modified heavy machine gun in a hidden bunker last month close to Bakhmut. Drone operators more than a mile away are directing Brabus onto Russian troops. How many Russians have you killed in this war? Uh, a lot of. <laughs> a lot of. Uh, a lot of. For example, here's a lot of Russians. <laughs> this is when you're on the, this the, the, with this gun. Yeah. How many, more or less, there? Oh, I don't know. We, uh, we didn't calculate, understand. <laughs> it's the Russians they want to do the counting because Ukraine's best hope is that Russian troops run rather than fight. Now, Poppy, very intense fighting, the Ukrainians are saying, is going on now on that southern front and in the, what we're calling the Zaporizhia front. That is the approach for the Ukrainians towards the great prize of Crimea. And again, that is a bloody old-fashioned war there. 
Sam, we appreciate your reporting. Thank you. The nation's largest Protestant denomination voting overwhelmingly to expel churches with female pastors. What it means for the future of the Southern Baptist Convention. That's next. Also, 78 people are dead in a shipwreck off the coast of Greece. What officials say caused this migrant boat to capsize. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. You may lower them. If you are opposed, please raise your ballots. You may lower them. Those in favor have it, and the motions are referred. Churches with women as pastors are no longer welcome in the Southern Baptist Convention, the influential Christian organization, the largest Protestant denomination in this country, initially disfellowshipped five women-led churches in February. But two of the five appealed that decision, including... Saddleback Church, one of the largest and most powerful churches in the country. It's, of course, led by a name you might know, Rick Warren. Well, yesterday that appeal failed. The other church that fought, fought against this expulsion is Fern Creek Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. It's led by Pastor Linda Barnes-Popham, and she joins us now. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning to you. What does it feel like waking up this morning knowing that this fight that you and so many in the church feel so passionately about ultimately failed. On one hand, it feels like being kicked out of the family. Wow. Uh, and perhaps even like a divorce, as one of my friends said. But on the other hand, there's something liberating and freeing. Hmm. Being no more bound, bound no more to the traditions and opinions and the power of those in leadership in the Southern Baptist Convention. You had said that you, you know, ultimately you said in, in your speech that your church, that you fully affirm the Baptist faith and message before it was changed. This is one from 1963. Have, it was changed in 2000, if I'm correct. And that's when it was changed to say that pastors could only be men. You are correct in that. But it's also known that the Baptist faith and message is a confessional and not a creed. And we have been free all this time to adhere to any of those confessionals, the 1925, uh, the 1963, the 2000, and we have been those who have adhered to the 1963. I was reading, some New York Times reporters were down there at this convention and did a really excellent job documenting. Yes. You probably ran into them documenting yeah. So the, the feelings of not only yes. you, women leaders, but also, you know, members of the church. And, and this is what, you know, one, one of them said, um, and, and just talking about their sadness. And, and they also quoted you saying, this is a signal of decline for Southern Baptists. I believe they're going to discourage so many women from ministry that women and their families will find other places to serve. Yes, and one of the most poignant memories of the last two days is after I spoke, a 14-year-old girl mm. with her mother following behind her came through the crowds, found me, and wept and wept in my arms and said, I'm 14 years old, and when I was 11, God called me to be a minister, and now I can't do that in the family that I love. It's just such a sad, sad thing for her. What? Because she's grown up in this denomination, and so have her parents, and her dreams have been to pastor in the denomination that she loved. 
for so many years, um, my understanding, I'm not a Southern Baptist, my understanding is that being part of the Southern Baptist Convention, you were also sort of left alone, right? To your point, it's a confession, not a creed. What do you think? Exactly. What do you think changed? Is there something that is threatening about a female pastor, about someone like yourself who has said you felt called to the ministry as well at a very young age, just like that young girl? And that's what we have been asking. And whenever a reporter or anyone talks with us, we say, when you find out, let us know. Why now? It makes no sense. All I know is there are some kind of deeds done in darkness or some kind of maneuvering that's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, right now, uh, seeking to get rid of women in any capacity in ministry, not just the pastor. As the amendment that was voted on after we left, uh, it sounds like that after another vote that they will be successful in women not serving in any type of ministry roles in the Southern Baptist Convention. You, however, will continue to serve in your role uh, at your church. Oh, yes. Yeah. We will continue to be a church. Uh, we will continue to lift high the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're about. It's like, why would you pick us out of the others you could have chosen too? And who reported us for this investigation? Uh, why did that person not follow biblical standards and, and come to me in the first place? We could have sat down and dialogued. But I found out that most of those folks didn't want to dialogue, even yeah. uh, at the convention. I know one man came up to the 20-year-old who was with me and said, your pastor is leading you astray. Uh, that impacted her greatly uh, and so sad that, that she had been a part of, of that. Pastor Linda Barnes-Poppin, we really appreciate you joining us this morning with your perspective. Thank you. You're welcome. Dozens of migrants have been bused from Texas to California. How officials in both states are responding this morning. A bus full of migrants arriving in Los Angeles last night. This came at the order of Texas Governor Greg Abbott. A spokesperson for an immigrants' rights group tells CNN 42 migrants, including eight children, were on board. They were bused from the Rio Grande Valley of South Texas to Los Angeles. The mayor of L.A. and local leaders calling Governor Abbott's move uh, political. Abbott, though, defended himself in a statement saying that Texas border towns are, quote, overwhelmed and overrun and cited Los Angeles' choice to dub itself as a sanctuary city. We are back now with our panel. As we look at this, Congressman, uh, you represented the 23rd Congressional mm -hmm. District. That stretches across the southwestern yeah. portion of Texas. Do you agree with what Governor Abbott is doing? Well, so what I don't understand with some of these debates about moving people, if you go to the San Antonio airport any day of the week, there are hundreds of, of migrants getting flown all over the country. Um, Del Rio, Eagle Pass, El Paso, can't handle the capacity of people that are coming into our, our country illegally. So whether it was a political move or not, other cities around the country are gonna have to continue to help uh, deal with this crisis that I remind people started under, under Donald Trump and it's gotten significantly worse under, under Joe Biden. So, so the, the communities in that, that I represent, I had 820 miles of the border. It took 10 and a half hours to drive across, across my district at 80 miles an hour, which was the speed limit in most of the district. The, these communities have been dealing with this before COVID. 
They were hit by COVID. And now they're having you know, thousands of people that they have to take care of before they find uh, uh, places to go in, in the interior of the country. So, so I don't know how a bus is different from a flight. Um, what we need to be talking about is how California can say, hey, here's the capacity we can have, you know, bring this many people. Chicago needs to be doing the same thing. I know uh, New York City is, is doing that because this is, a, this is a collective problem that everybody needs to deal so with. So you mentioned everybody needs to step up, but just to go back to the original question, do you yeah. agree with the way Governor Abbott is handling it? Is this the right way to do it? So, so again, I don't know the needs about sending people on a bus versus a plane. I don't know, I don't know what the difference is. I know a lot of people are still um, getting on buses and Places like Del Rio uh, to go to, to, to other parts of the country. So I don't know how this is more is different. Um, I know, you know, there was a couple of buses sent to, to Kamala Harris's house in, in Washington, D.C. Um, yes, of course, that's trying to, to shine a political light on this. But why are we not, if we're outraged by that, why are we not outraged by treating everybody as an asylum seeker, which is not the way the, the law is written, and how that is fueling money to the human smugglers that are bringing people in here in a perilous journey and taking their money. Smugglers in, in Mexico made about 25 billion dollars last year because on average um, someone has to pay about ten thousand dollars to use a smuggler why are we not outraged by that and, and and this this notion that we're treating everybody as an asylum seeker actually hurts the people that need asylum and so why are we not outright outraged by streamlining legal immigration um, the fact that Demo you know republicans always get blamed for that but when when democrats have owned the entire government and had all branches of government they've never been able to do that because they're far our left has, has problems as well, too. So let's be outraged by all of it and actually solve some of the problem. And there's a number of things this administration can do that doesn't require congressional support or uh, legislation to solve this problem, not be consumed by uh, some people being on a bus, going to a place where they're probably going to have uh, a better quality of life and not have to sleep on the, on the, on the, on the benches in, in El Paso. Talk about New York City specifically. This is your beat. And um, Mayor Adams has been very vocal about his dissatisfaction with the Biden administration on this front, asking for more help. The response to that from Governor Abbott and others is you you named this a sanctuary city. So now you can feel what we're feeling. Yeah. Where does this go? I mean, the argument about sanctuary city is, is I mean, that's pure politics. You know, right. sanctuary, sanctuary city really refers to what happens after somebody gets you here. You won't be prosecuted for. You won't necessarily. Right. There's not a lot of tight cooperation between border officials, say, in the NYPD. But that, you know, that you know who implemented that, by the way, is Rudy Giuliani, a Republican <laughs> mayor of a generation ago. But the, the, the real problem is that uh, the, the migrants, we got 2,200 here in New York City just last week. Mm -hmm. There are upwards of 40,000 people now staying in hotels and shelters in New York City, in part because they were sent here by Governor Abbott and other border uh, state uh, politicians. Uh, the, the reality is it does require some kind of a rational, national conversation and response the burden on New York City alone is upwards of $4 billion is the estimate. And that is absolutely unsustainable. I mean, you know, they'll, they'll figure out what to do with it and they'll do humanitarian interventions when and where possible. But uh, to, to sort of shift a catastrophe all over the country randomly in an uncoordinated fashion with politics as the motivation, rather than sitting down to sort of legislate some kind of solution, 
is absolutely irresponsible, but this is what you get. This is what you get. We don't have enough money for the immigration judges. We don't have enough money for the humanitarian. No, no, no. We do have enough money. It's about how we're we're spending spending enough money. We're not allocating enough money. I'll never forget watching. It's so old, this documentary, A Well-Founded Fear, that Mm. I think everyone should watch a frontline piece about the asylum process and judges and how arbitrary this is and how this all works. And it really gets to the core of, you know, what it looks like to come to this country for asylum, what you're facing, and then exacerbated so, so much now. Um, so how are we spending the money and resources? A big, a big part of, of how it's broken is it's obvious, if you think about it for just a few minutes, that massive spending in Venezuela, in yes, Mexico, at the root. in other places, right, to stop the flow or to at least disincentivize it or even just to shift some of the logistical handling of it over there would be worth every penny. And yet, if you talk about increasing what's perceived as foreign aid, It draws an enormous response. And and Americans think, no, 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 no. Why are we spending over there when we should be spending here? That's a really fair point. And the answer is, well, because it would cost 90% less. (laughs) Errol, thank you very much, Congressman Hurd. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Up next, it has been 15 years since the legend, Tim Russert, the long-serving moderator of NBC's Meet the Press, passed away. Now his son, Luke, is opening up about grief and growth in his new book. We're so happy to have Luke Russert join us live in studio. Jam song that Luke Russert says helped him get through a lot in 15 years since he lost his father, the famed and really beloved TV news legend, Tim Russert. Our beloved colleague, one of the premier journalists of our time, Tim Russert, died this afternoon after collapsing at work at the NBC News Bureau in Washington, D.C. Tim Russert died of a heart attack just days before Father's Day. It was 2008. He was only 58 years old. He was the longest-serving host of NBC's Meet the Press. He also served as the network's Washington bureau chief. And his son, Luke, was just 22 years old when he lost his dad. In his new book, Look for Me There, Grieving My Father, Finding Myself, he chronicles his years-long journey to find answers about his own life, his career, and his father's legacy. And he writes... The last eight years have been such a whirlwind that I've never fully processed my dad's grief. It's apparent that I've spent so much time honoring his legacy that I've never truly accepted his death. Worse, by honoring the legacy, I have failed to forge my own life. But I think he's done that. I'm so happy to be joined now by Luke Russert. Thank you so much for having me, Poppy. Such a good book. Appreciate it. Such a meaningful book. Um, We were a few days from Father's Day, and I think for everyone who's lost a parent, um, Father's Day means something different. But to you, as you look at this Father's Day, let's just play the eulogy, part of the eulogy that you gave for your dad all those years ago. Here it is. But his spirit lives on in everybody who loves their country, loves their family, loves their faith, and loves those Buffalo Bills. I love you, Dad, and in his words, let us all go get them. And here's what happens after that, Luke. You write, Senator Obama stands first and starts to clap. Others join. Soon it's full of a standing ovation, an anomaly at a Catholic funeral. I take a slow walk to the pew. I don't cry. I whisper, thanks, Dad. Yeah. That yeah. day, really the beginning of the rest of your life. It was. And I look back on that kid, 22-year-old Luke, and he was trying so hard. And I often wonder where he got the strength to do that. And it was really a sense of duty 
not only to honor his father uh, and his family, but to some degree, I think, to try and also make people comfortable at the time. You know, I had so many people at the wake who came up to me and said, Tim's alive through you. We see the twinkle in his eye and your eye. And I tried to gravitate towards that and, and really live that. And I did that for many years, brought that into NBC News and my own reporting, tried to live up to my father's standards and values. But there became a moment where I realized, man, I've been living for this legacy. I've been trying to keep that flame going. I don't really know what's going on inside. And I started to feel anxious. I started to feel moments of uh, self-reflection where I didn't necessarily know, is this what I want to do? That was, so, that was such a key part of the book for me. On page 33, you write, a hollowness inside me widens. I can't ignore it. I have been using journalism as an altruistic shield, but it's not enough to protect me from thinking I'm letting my life slip away. You left this huge career, you know, what could have been stardom. I don't know, maybe you would have followed your father's footsteps <laughs> and moderated Meet the Press, but you left it three years, six continents, 65 countries yeah. to find yourself. I was looking for who I was independent of him, independent of the legacy, independent of the Washington bubble, independent of media. And in some ways, I was almost seeking permission to be my own person, which I look back at now and I go, man, that's so silly because my father loved me so much. The one thing more than anything else he would want me to do is to be happy. And if being happy meant being your own man, go ahead and do it, Luke. I love you. I'll support you. I'll back you up. The other thing, though, that I did over the course of all those continents and those countries was I was trying to outrun grief. Because I had never really dealt with it. Outrun grief. Outrun grief, because I had never dealt with it. I had outrun it when I threw myself into work. The greatest cure for misery is hard work, and I got in a fortune cookie when I was 22 years old. And I just sort of left journalism. I said, okay, I'm going to go reflect and think about things. And I became more comfortable with the voice in my own head. But throughout the process, I realized, man, I have never really understood the gravity of losing my best friend and my North Star. I'd always sort of stored and ignored, which unfortunately a lot of young men Stored and ignored. Stored and ignored, which is something I think a lot of young men ultimately do. Uh, a lot of men do. It's, um, it's a way to sort of escape the vulnerability of having to deal with grief and loss, which is often difficult, especially when you're trying to project strength for your family and for your, your own mentality. You talk about the courage to find your purpose. And there's this amazing scene in the book where then House Speaker John Boehner calls you in for this special <laughs> meeting. And he essentially like tells you to go. It's an, it's an incredible moment. Here's a guy, second in line to the presidency, yeah. House Speaker. He called me into his office on Capitol Hill, and I thought he was going to be mad about coverage. You know politicians will call you up. They go, <laughs> oh, I do you're know. not giving me a fair shake. What are you doing? <laughs> and I walk into the office. He asks me a very simple question. He goes, what are you doing here? And I said, what do you mean? You called me in your office. What are you doing here? He goes, no, what are you doing here on Capitol Hill? He goes, I've seen you here for eight years. I know so many folks that are here, 20, 30, 40 years. They wake up one morning, and they don't know if this was all there was in their life. He goes, it's a great job. If you like it, stay here. You do, you're, you're good at it. But just make sure it's what you actually want to do yeah. because time's a flat circle, and this is a very transactional place. And it was words from a, from a pretty decent messenger. You end the book with the chapter on uh, your travels to Jerusalem. Yeah. And that's where we really learn about your faith. You're a devout Catholic. And you had this a pretty remarkable experience in Jerusalem asking God, what am I supposed to do? It was what did he tell you? Towards the end of the journey. And I'm confused because I started writing the book at that point, but I didn't really know what is the purpose of all of this? Why was I bestowed upon all these things bestowed all these things upon me? What can I do? And I go into the tomb of Christ, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and it's there where I pray and I simply ask God, what can I do? And I hear a voice in my head that says, Well keep praying. I go, Oh my gosh. <laughs> 
why? Oh, this is going to continue. And then lo and behold, I walk out into the dark night of old Jerusalem and there's all the shops are closed, but there's one guy who's selling yarmulkes on a table. And the one that's front and center is a Buffalo Bills yarmulke. And there's I go, dad. That's, that's dad. And those are, you have to be aware of the signs. And once I saw that, I went to the Western Wall. I won't give away the ending, but essentially I became aware that you got to look for the signs and they're all there. Slip and those signs in. will... We'll, we'll take care of you. I slipped the note in, yeah. And I and I and that's my message to dad. Let's mm-hmm. end on this for, for Father's Day and everyone who experiences it differently. You write in the book, Oh dear dad, can you see me now? I am myself like you somehow. I oh. will ride that makes yeah, me. Yeah, no, it does it. No, I will ride the wave where it takes me. I'll hold the pain, release me. Yeah, it's tears to my eyes. of Eddie Vedder for the song release, which you played on the way in. And I think that that's something that a lot of us who lost our fathers. Uh, we hold on to that and we hold on to their spirit. We hold on to their memory. Father's Day is not easy for a lot of people. I'm so very much aware of that. But I got to a place where more so than anything, our lost loved ones, they want us to be happy. They want us to cheers them and they want us to uh, remember them fondly. And that's what I will do for my father this Father's Day. It's such a good book. And for anyone dealing with grief, I hope they read it. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Poppy. I appreciate it. Thanks, Luke. Very Thank much. You. Uh, Look for me there. Grieving my father, finding myself is out now. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Search and rescue operations are ramping up this morning after a migrant boat carrying hundreds sank off the southern coast of Greece. Now, officials say at least 78 people drowned. Hundreds more, though, are feared missing. The Greek Coast Guard has taken more than 100 survivors, all of the men, to Kalamata, Greece. That is where we find CNN's Melissa Bell. Um, so we're hearing some 750 people were on board that boat. There was some sort of a, as I understand it, Melissa, a sudden shift in weight. What more, what more do you know this morning? That's right, Erica. And what we're seeing more than 36 hours after this ship sank, the fear is at this stage that the 104 survivors, many of whom are being looked after in that hangar behind me, will be the only ones uh, found. The Greek authorities have vowed to carry on saying they'll try and find anyone they can. But there are also growing questions, Erica, about how a boat so clearly in distress should have been left to sink. A dramatic rescue at sea. The Greek Coast Guard pulling a group of people to safety, the lucky ones, survivors of yet another catastrophe on the deadliest migrant crossing in the world, the Mediterranean. Somehow, 104 people managed to leave this overcrowded fishing boat alive, but hundreds that you see here did not. Most still missing in the deepest part of the Mediterranean Sea, just 50 miles off the Greek coast. On shore, medics rushed to preserve the lives of those that survived, their bodies in trauma after hours in the water. All are men. Aid workers tell me others were unable to get out. What we are getting from the people is that the, mostly the kids and the women, they've, they've been uh, like locked inside the, uh, the basement of the boat. As the search for bodies continues, there are questions about how long it took to try to help these people. The vessel started out from Libya, heading towards Italy, and called for help on Tuesday afternoon, one charity has said. It claims the authorities knew for hours that the vessel was in peril, but that a rescue operation was, quote, not launched until it was too late. At this stage, 
There is little hope that more survivors will be found. Those that did make it are deeply traumatized and their future in Europe far from certain. Erica, we've been speaking to family members desperate to try and figure out whether their loved ones were on this ship. And of course, that's part of the wider tragedy that at this moment, there are so many others, even now in the Mediterranean, trying to get to safety, Erica. Yeah, it's, it's, and that it too is such an important point. Melissa, appreciate it. Thank you. CNN This Morning continues now. Donald's position is never to settle, ever, because he thinks it's a sign of weakness. Unfortunately, he didn't have anybody around him to guide him properly. He's like a petulant child that just keeps sticking their finger into an electric socket. Most people don't have what it takes in order to tell Donald that you're wrong, you got to do this, because Donald doesn't want to hear it. And if you do say it, he just terminates you. Morning, everyone. That is where we begin on the former president because of a really stunning report in The Washington Post this morning that former President Trump has repeatedly ignored the advice of his lawyers, some of whom tried to prevent this classified documents case from coming in the first place. He's now uh, that he's now in, including an attorney who wanted to strike a deal with the Justice Department will tell you who he has been listening to. Plus, we could get a huge decision this morning from the Supreme Court dealing with affirmative action. We're going to take a closer look at the case that could radically transform the way colleges across this country use race as a factor in admissions. And the young black state lawmakers in Tennessee who were expelled just a few months ago by their fellow colleagues who were Republicans, they're and then reinstated. They're now facing a special election today. They're going to join us live in studio. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now. Here's where we begin with the Washington Post piece that I mentioned, reporting that one of Donald Trump's lawyers wanted to strike a deal with the Justice Department months ago to avoid criminal charges in the classified documents case, but the former president rejected the idea. The Post reports that Chris Kyes wanted to negotiate a settlement with DOJ attorneys back in the fall. This is, of course, after that August search of Mar-a-Lago by the FBI, where they found a trove of highly sensitive documents, including secrets about our nation's nuclear program. CNN spoke to sources close to Trump's legal team, though, about the Post reporting, and some of them are casting doubt on this having been a real opportunity to prevent Trump's indictment. Uh, the reporting also notes that rather than listening to actual lawyers, um, CNN and The Post both found, both report that Trump had been following the advice of this man. It's Tom Fitton, who doesn't have a law degree. He is the head of the conservative activist group Judicial Watch. CNN has previously reported Fitton started calling Trump in February of last year, urging him not to turn over the documents and also not to cooperate with federal investigators. Let's bring in CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, chief White House correspondent and senior political correspondent at The Messenger, Amy Parnes, and CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Uh, Ellie, can you talk about what this would have looked like if you, you, were, you were a prosecutor, yeah. uh, if you're sitting at DOJ and the Trump team comes to you after you found these classified documents from Mar-a-Lago and says, look, let's strike a deal here. We don't need to go forward with this. We'll give you everything you want. Would DOJ have done that? It's all about timing. And I think at that point in this whole sequence here, after the search warrant has been done in August 2022, I don't think there would have been any deal to be had short of taking a plea. But if the idea is 
okay, the Trump's team's going to come to me as DOJ and say, we're going to give you everything now that you've come in and searched the place and you're going you're gonna to go away. I think it's too late at that point. I think there's a point of no return. Once DOJ's got to the point where they've gone to a judge, said we have probable cause, you've done the search warrant. Now, that said, I think if the lawyers had gotten through to Donald Trump way earlier in the process, before DOJ got involved, when it was just archives, or maybe early on in the DOJ process and said, okay, sorry, there's been some bad communication here. Maybe he's gotten some bad advice. He wants to give you everything. We're going to invite you in. We're going to work with you. Back then, I think, there would have been a chance of a deal that did not involve a guilty plea. You know, it's interesting, former Congressman Will Hurd, who was with us earlier this morning, talking about, too, that there were so many points on this road where things like that could have happened that would have greatly changed this. And also the questions that we're, we're not talking about and the reality that we're not talking about in terms of uh, the allegations when it comes to a number of Republicans defending the former president. When you look at this, Amy, from a political angle, is this really the only tactic that Donald can, Trump can take right now is to take that page out of his very well-worn playbook that we all know and just throw whatever he wants to out there, right? Make wild allegations that don't have anything to do with his charges. Is that it? Well, look, Trump wants to be Trump, right? This is like a, a spot he's familiar with. He likes sort of this contentious back and forth. He likes holding the Biden uh, administration accountable and pointing to them and saying, look, they're the ones who did this to me. And look, he's raising a lot of money off of it. He's rallying the troops. He is far ahead of Ron DeSantis at this point because of this indictment and the last indictment. So I think he feels like this propels him. And it's why he wanted to sort of, you know, hold his ground. He didn't want to he didn't want to give back his documents. I talked to people who said that he was very firm on that. He didn't want to do that. Um, and he doesn't listen to his advice anyway from lawyers. So when was the last time you listened to a lawyer, really? It's a good question. He's, a tough <laughs> he's what's known as a difficult client. Well, and the Washington Post reporting zeroes in on um, a lawyer who's kind of back on the scene, uh, Mr. Keyes, the former mm -hmm. Solicitor General of Florida, who said, let me go to Maine justice and see if we can put out this fire. Um, enter Mr. Fitton, who says, you know, give him hell. In the Donald Trump playbook, always a more attractive option um, and CNN did some very good reporting on this last year with Evan Perez and Kristen Holmes um, about, you know, Fitton's intervention. Um, but as Ellie points out, once you've executed that search warrant and the wheels of the criminal justice system are turning, um, it's almost too late to say you're sorry. If you approach on the right level, though, and said, there's more, we went about this wrong, and consider the implications of criminal charges against a former president, let's straighten this whole thing out. Um, there is a chance that an attorney general could have said, all right, full stop, let's go through this and see what else is there, and maybe we can come to some kind of agreement. Obviously, that train left the station without yes. anybody on it. Literally, that he's, did not happen. He's magnet Donald Trump is magnetically attracted to the worst possible advice. I mean, it's, it's been a theme from the time when he took office. It's been a theme throughout the Mueller investigation. There have been sort of two different types of lawyers. Lawyers saying, calm down, let's do the right thing. You can, you can work here. And then the people like Tom Fitton, not a lawyer, but telling him, no way, fight, you know, <laughs> Get your back up, and that always has led him into more trouble. Well, it goes back to the right right And Cohen, history has also yeah. shown us yes. that those are the lawyers that last the shortest time. So it's interesting to see uh, Keys back in the game. Yeah.
Um, we also want to get your take on this. So a grand jury here in New York has voted to indict a man accused of killing a homeless man uh, after holding him in a chokehold on the subway train. Uh, that chokehold lasting a number of minutes. Marine veteran Daniel Penny has been indicted, uh, expected to be indicted on second-degree manslaughter charges. This is according to a source with knowledge of that case. We're expecting that formal announcement to come later today. He's accused of killing Jordan Nearly last month. Now, he says he felt nearly presented a threat and a danger on the subway train. Witnesses described the homeless man getting on the train, shouting that he was hungry, thirsty, didn't care if he died. They say Penny walked up behind Neely at one point, put him in a chokehold. CNN has reached out to Penny's attorneys for comment uh, as we wait to hear back on all of that. As we look at this, John, what do you make first of the indictment? So the indictment is he was arrested on May 12th. Mm -hmm. The controversy, of course, was it was two weeks after the incident and people were saying, um, you know, had this been a, a black suspect, mm -hmm. he would have been arrested that night at the scene. What is this special treatment? Uh, the district attorney's office said, we want to hear more about the case. What do the other witnesses on the train say? What is the video? Show? Is there another video? And so on. They put it through the grand jury. That's the first test. That's 23 people who say, well, I'll hear all of that um, or as much as the district attorney will present and decide, is there probable cause to sustain this manslaughter charge? Which means he recklessly, not intentionally, recklessly caused the death of another uh, by taking actions that a reasonable person should have known were likely to result in that. Uh, the key now is going on to trial. Two big questions. I don't know the answer to the first. I do know he was indicted on man two yesterday. We don't know if Daniel Penny testified before that grand jury and told his story. Because mm. if he did, it shows us it did not move those people. If he didn't, he's saving that for the trial um, where he's going to have to articulate what was in his mind that made him think that that uh, use of force was justified, that, this, uh, that Mr. Neely was about to do something yeah, this is going to, to hurt a, someone? This is going to be a difficult trial, I mean, any way you look at it. And it will come down to sort of the nuances of what exactly happened in that subway car. What exactly was Mr. Neely doing? I think the testimony of the bystanders, the other people in that car, is going to be crucial. How long did he hold them in the chokehold? What signs or indicators was Mr. Neely giving? And it's important to keep in mind, as John well knows, the standard for a grand jury is probable cause down here, but at a, at a criminal jury, at, at a trial jury, beyond a reasonable doubt, and you need unanimous. So uh, it's, this is going to be a, a tragic trial, difficult trial, but, but a tough one, too. Yeah, an important one. Yeah. Uh, also this morning, the Supreme Court could release a major decision on affirmative action that justices may ban universities from considering race as a driving factor in their admissions process, making it one of the Supreme Court's uh, biggest reversals of a precedent since Roe versus Wade last year. Ariane Vogt joins us now. We won't know till 10 a.m. We never know if they're going to do this. But just set the table for us. We learned a lot in the oral arguments in this case, and it signaled where this court is likely to go. Right. At 10 o'clock, we're going to get opinions. We never know in advance which ones, but all eyes are waiting to see if the court's going to answer that question, whether colleges and universities can continue to take race into consideration as a factor uh, in admissions. Decades-old precedent is at stake, and it has allowed uh, the schools to take race into consideration just in a holistic way, as long as it's not this strict quota. Uh, at issue here are plans from the University of North 
Carolina and Harvard. And these schools argue that they want to take race into consideration so that they can increase diversity on campus. Uh, they say that that leads to a better learning environment. And at oral arguments, you heard Elena Kagan saying, look, these schools are very often the pipelines to leadership in society. Uh, but the challengers, uh, they come from a conservative group here. And it says basically that these plans violate equal protection principles as well as federal law that bars you uh, from race discrimination. They say... Uh, that the plans actually thwart their goal of a colorblind uh, society. So the most important thing to remember here is almost uh, just a year ago, the court made that move to overturn precedent in the area of abortion. Now the big question is whether this conservative court that is bolstered by three of President Trump's nominee is ready to make that move again uh, to overturn precedent and to get rid of these programs uh, that have benefited black and Hispanic students. So we'll see at 10 o'clock if we're going to get that opinion today. You know, it's interesting in oral arguments when Justice Alito uh, talked about this and he's, he asked this question, you know, to, to the lawyers arguing, what does that mean? And he talked about college admissions as a zero-sum game. Uh, and, and, and that really seemed to indicate a lot just to me as a, as a listener. But what about to you as a court expert? Well, you're looking at the conservatives on this court, and you can also look at Justice Clarence Thomas, the second African-American man on the uh, Supreme Court. He has long said that he thinks that precedent should be overturned. He says that in uh, the big picture, it ends up hurting rather than helping. So we're going to see right. what he has to say this time. But a few years ago, he said that this precedent should be overturned. And you expect it will be, do you think Clarence Thomas will write the majority opinion if it goes that way? It's hard to tell, right? We've got a lot of big cases pending, and you sort of just have to do the math. Who's written different majority opinions? Uh, uh, there are other big cases. There's a voting rights case. There's a couple of cases having to do uh, with President Biden's programs. So you just have to see. It, at this time of the year, it's a guessing game. When are we going to get these opinions, and who's going to write? Uh, We'll have to check in at 10 o'clock. Thank you, R.I.M., very much. We certainly will. Thanks. Meantime, it is election day for the two Tennessee state lawmakers who were expelled, then reinstated because of their gun reform demonstrations on the state house floor. Representatives Justin J. Pearson and Justin Jones will join us next. And an Arizona mother who received a frantic phone call sounded like her daughter telling her she'd been kidnapped. You may remember this story that CNN brought you. It wasn't actually her daughter on the phone. It was a scam. A frightening scam created with artificial intelligence. You're going to hear directly from that mom. She'll join us live and talk about urging Congress now to act. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. hear all those cheers because that was Tennessee State Representative Justin Jones in April being reinstated to the Tennessee House after being expelled. Today, he and his colleague, Justin J. Pearson, face a special primary election to get back their seats. The lawmakers, both young black Democrats, were expelled from the Republican-dominated chamber in April for this. They were accused of breaking decorum when they staged a gun reform demonstration on the floor using a, a blowhard and following 
This, of course, followed that deadly school shooting in Nashville. Both men returned to the Tennessee House after local officials reappointed them through unanimous votes. But those were only interim appointments. Jones is running unopposed in his primary. He will advance to the general election in the fall. Pearson, however, has one Democratic challenger in the primary, and they both join us this morning. It's great to have you. A blow horn. I said it wrong. Sorry about that, guys. Good morning. Thanks very much for being with us. I, I, want, I, want, I wonder, Mr. Jones, to you, you ha you're, you're still going into, uh, assuming you guys retake your seats, a body where two-thirds of it voted to oust you for these goals and for saying we have to do something on guns that are killing our children. What has it been like interacting with them as you face this special election? Yes, well, good morning, and thank you so much for having us. Um, as you stated, today is the primary election. I don't have a Democratic opponent, but I do have a Republican opponent in the August 3rd special election. And for my opponent, let me give you an example. Over 60% of my opponent's campaign contributions come from my Republican colleagues in the legislature. 60%, which means that my, my colleagues who voted to expel uh, myself and Representative Pearson still have not given up in their attempt to kick out the two youngest black lawmakers in our state because we stood with our constituents uh, fighting for common sense gun laws. We have a special session on August 21st that we hope will move forward around gun safety. Um, but we know that we are still in a body where our voices are not welcome. The last week of session, we were not allowed to speak on the House floor. We still have been stripped of our committees and we're still treated like second class members in the Tennessee General Assembly. And so the, the work to, to reinstate us as full members to represent our districts, over 70,000 people each, um, that work continues. And Mr. Pearson, you do have a challenger in the primary today. We'll ask you about that in a second. But just to pick up, you know, where your colleague left off, are you feeling that same way in terms of what it's been like for you over the last several months trying to do the job that, that you were elected to do? You were reinstated. Um, has it been more challenging? Hey, we have to realize that we're dealing with an institution and institutions do not change very quickly. Uh, this institution has been rooted in white supremacy, has been rooted in patriarchy and injustice for a very long time. And the ramifications of their decisions, because they have been supporting a mobocracy instead of a democracy, have been hurting our democracy through anti-democratic behavior, such as our expulsions. And so because we know this institution is not going to change in and of itself, we are relying on the people-powered movement that is multiracial, that is intergenerational, that is lifting up the voices of hundreds of thousands and millions of Tennesseans that want to see something done on gun safety, that want to see something done on the issues that matter to our communities, both in rural, suburban and urban Tennessee. Do you think, Representative Jones, that anything changes? I mean, I, I remember when you, uh, speaking after all of this, you said, we called for you all to ban assault weapons. You responded with an assault on democracy, saying you weren't willing to use this effort, this time, this power to talk about red flag laws and some of the other things you guys were calling for. But you also vowed to be with the people every week demanding that you act. Do you have reason, because the body hasn't significantly changed in terms of you know, their, their politics. Do you have any reason to believe you can get some of this stuff done a second time around? I do. Um, you know, this summer I've met with people from still across the state and the majority of Tennesseans, Republican, Independent, Democrats, support common sense gun laws. The governor is calling for us to pass uh, red flag laws and NRA endorsed governor. And so the, the tide is shifting here and, and there's a generational shift. As I said back in April, 
the, the Republican supermajority of Tennessee has lost a generation. Gen Z is the find out generation. And they are rising up. They're organizing. I was with students yesterday making shirts that say protect kids, not guns. And they're going to be having a, a, a rally tomorrow in the House Republican leader William Lambert's district in Sumner County, a rural county. And so the, Tennessee is shifting for the better. We're building a multiracial democracy, a multigenerational democracy, a multi-faith democracy in our state. And, and either we're going to change you know, the laws here or we're going to change what's in those seats come 2024. And this election, is, this election for us, the special election, is going to be that first step forward to show that attacks on democracy will not happen in the comfort of silence and that we're going to protect our kids and not the gun industry. Great to have both of you with us. Tennessee State Representatives Justin J. Pearson, Justin Jones, thank you both. Thank you. New this morning, South Korea reporting that the North has fired two ballistic missiles. We'll give you the, the latest on what we're learning this hour. Also, this just in, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez just announced he is, in fact, joining that 2024 race for the White House. So new this morning, South Korea reporting that North Korea has fired two ballistic missiles toward the east coast of the Korean Peninsula before that missile launch. North Korea denounced the joint exercises between the U.S. and the South and South Korea. Those exercises ended today. The two countries have staged five joint live drills since May the 25th. Uh, this also just into CNN, the 2024 Republican field growing again. In Miami, we stopped waiting for Washington to lead. America's so-called leaders confuse being loud with actually leading. All Washington wants to do is fight with each other instead of fighting for the people that put them in office. My dad taught me that you get to choose your battles, and I am choosing the biggest one of my life. I'm going to run for president. I'm going to run for your children and mine. Let's give them the future they deserve. The mayor of the city of Miami, Francis Suarez, uh, joining the rather crowded GOP race here. CNN chief national affairs correspondent Jeff Zeleny is with us now. So, Jeff, uh, the third Floridian to join the race. What more can you tell us about the mayor? Hey, good morning. Well, as you can see in the video there, uh, he's a young candidate. He's 45 years old, clearly wanting to show that uh, he's in good shape. And he uh, presents a generational change with many of the candidates in the race. Uh, as you said, the field is getting incredibly crowded, but he becomes yet another Republican. Uh, he's going to formally announce tonight at the Reagan Library. Of course, that is an interesting uh, venue to do so. He said Ronald Reagan has been a hero of his since he was a very young boy. But again, at 45 years old, he would have certainly had to have been a young boy. He did not really live through uh, the Reagan era, but he uh, was reelected um, to the, the mayor of Miami after being um, elected the first time uh, with very strong margins. Now, the mayor is largely a ceremonial role. Most of the power in Miami comes from the uh, county board, but he certainly is a uh, spokesman and a, um, you know, certainly a good face for Miami. But I sat down with him last year to talk about what he believes is needed in this Republican field. And his comments now perhaps are more instructive than ever. There's absolutely no doubt uh, that relitigating the 2020 election is not going to be a recipe for success for the Republican Party. I think having a, a vision, uh, understanding that this could be a generational moment for the country where, you know, people are passing the baton from one generation to the next uh, creates generational opportunities for for many people in this country. So uh, talking about not relitigating the 2020 election, uh, this 
certainly is now front of mind again as we hear uh, former President Donald Trump uh, talking still about uh, the election uh, that he claims he um, wanted Joe Biden, which of course is not true. But he is also talking about uh, the need for someone from outside Washington, someone to run as an outsider. So that is how he is presenting himself. Uh, make no mistake, this is a very uh, uphill battle for him. The race is very crowded. He's not well known at all. The biggest challenge, of course, will be trying to get on that debate stage in August, the first Republican debate, August 23rd. The uh, candidates must have 40,000 donors from 20 different states to make that uh, debate stage. But certainly he's in the race today, a growing field, which likely benefits the frontrunner, Donald Trump. Eric and Poppy. We will be watching all of it. Jeff, great to have you here this morning. Thank you. Uh, sure. And a really important programming note tomorrow, right here on CNN This Morning, Mayor Francis Suarez will join us live. Uh, as we look at where things stand now, Ellie, John, Amy, all back with us. Um, the fact that we have Mayor Suarez now in the race, we have a rather crowded field, which we've been saying for some time now, but it just keeps getting a little, a little bit more crowded. Can he change the conversation? Can he break through when you're dealing with this many people and one very loud, very well-known main contender? That's the thing. I mean, no one can really change the conversation because the former president is dominating the headlines and the news cycles, and it's hard to. I think what people are looking for now is someone who is going to, say, be a Chris Christie, for instance, and say, well, what are you doing? Like, what, why are you going to elect someone like Donald Trump again? So it, it's this is a vanity campaign. Um, I don't expect that anything will come of it, but, you know, name recognition maybe for him down the road. And it all benefits the former former president, really. I mean, there's a huge lead right now between former president and um, Ron DeSantis. Um, I think everyone else is sort of campaigning for vice president at this point. It's, an, it's interesting because it seems like there's now sort of two litmus tests as it relates to Donald Trump and his ongoing legal battles. One of them is, do you believe that Donald Trump actually lost the 2020 election? And he has said quite clearly, let's forget about 2020. We need to stop claiming that that was stolen. And it seems like that's sort of become now the majority consensus opinion within this field. But then there's the trickier one, which is, how about this indictment now? How about this documents indictment? And he has struggled and tried to thread a needle a bit on that one. I think that one's trickier and going to trip up some of the candidates more so than the 2020 question. I think one of the interesting tells this week is we looked at the, the Donald Trump, you know, arraignment in Miami and people were saying, you know, where are the barriers? You know, why isn't this place locked down? And then you had a mayor who is 48 hours from announcing for president, uh, realizing this is a Republican-friendly crowd. It's uh, a crowd that he would like to convert to his voters. And, you know, the police took a, um, they had a high presence, but a, a much softer touch than we would have seen in New York here. So he's, he's, he is one of, the, we just. So you think that's directly tied to his. I, I think the approach to the event was. We're going to police this, but we don't want to make people mad because, you know, the, the Miami PD are identified with the Miami mayor, a Republican who's just about to announce. Um, but, you know, we had Will Hurd on a minute. You've got uh, a 45-year-old mayor of a big city. So, you know, you see this field growing with people with very different voices from the ones that are dominating. Thank you guys very much. A new poll finds that employees are stressed, bored with work. At record levels, Harry Anton, who is not either of those things. <laughs>
He promises us. <laughs> He's here with this morning's number. <laughs> He's not stressed, bored, or old. No, no. Uh, maybe <laughs> this will help. Type with... A personality. Look, he's like a hugger. Wouldn't... There you go. Harry's a hugger. A, uh, maybe you know? this will help with some of those workplace problems. There is a Friends-inspired Central Perk coffee house opening up. You've seen these before. Well, this one, not in New York City. The real-life coffee shop is going to open its doors later this year in Boston. That's according to People Magazine. We'll be right back. Love that. I want this said I had to stay here. Come on, you're single. Have some hormones. See, but I don't want to be single, okay? I just I just I just want to be married again. <laughs> and I just want a million dollars. I generally come in at least 15 minutes late. Uh, I use the side door. That way Lumberg can't see me. <laughs> and uh and after that, I just sort of space out for about an hour. Tell him hey. Space out? Yeah. I just stare at my desk. But it looks like I'm working. <laughs> if you're feeling burnout or lack of motivation at work, you're not alone. New polling shows workers around the world are more stressed than ever. They're more disengaged with their work than ever. Our senior data reporter, Harry Enton, is here with this morning's number. A lot of folks. A lot of folks. This morning's number... 77% of workers have low engagement levels globally, which cost the world economy nearly $9 billion. Look at this. Employees who have a lot of daily stress globally, 44% in 2022. That is up from 2009 when it was just 8 point, uh, sorry, 31% back in 2009. And you know what this is leading to? This is leading to a lot of people quitting their jobs. Record numbers quitting since 2001. Look at that. Nearly 51 million in 2022 in the United States. Back in 2021, nearly 48 million record numbers are quitting their jobs because they are not happy. Is it just that they're not happy? I mean, is there something that can do, be done rather to make people happier in their jobs? Yeah. So, you know, what are the workplace changes that we can make? Uh, and these are the changes to make your workplace better among the non-engaged Number one, interestingly enough, is changing the culture at 41%. Pay and benefits, 28%. Well-being, 16%. For example, longer break times at work. But keep in mind this. There are still a lot of job openings per month. This year, we're averaging 10 million. In 2022, it was 11 million. Look at that average from 2001 to 2020. It was just 5 million. So a lot more job openings for these people to potentially quit their jobs if they don't like it, which a lot of them don't. There you go. Harry Enton, thank you very thank much. You. A mother who was the victim of a fake extortion call claiming her daughter had been kidnapped is now urging Congress it's time to act on artificial intelligence. She and her daughter are going to join us live. They'll share their story next. An Arizona mother who was recently the victim of a deep fake kidnapping extortion plot uh, is joining us to talk about that scam. It used her daughter's voice and demanded money, a million dollars in ransom money at one point. Jennifer DeStefano testified before Congress this week to sound the alarm on the danger of artificial intelligence, urging lawmakers to regulate this uncharted territory before something like this happens to another family. It was my daughter's voice. It was her cries. It was her sobs. It was the way she spoke. I will never be able to shake that voice and the desperate cries for help out of my mind. It's every parent's worst nightmare to hear your child pleading with fear and pain, knowing that they are being harmed and that you're helpless. The longer this form of terror remains unpunishable, the farther and more egregious it will become. There is no limit to the depth of evil AI can enable. 
Jennifer DiStefano and her daughter Brie are joining us now. And Brie, for people who are not familiar with your story, I do want to point out you are safe, but you have always been safe. You were never in danger here. Jennifer, though, you had no way of knowing that when you got this phone call. We hear the emotion in your voice there from your testimony. Just walk us through, though, if you would, what those moments were like for you when you thought your daughter's life was hanging in the balance. Yeah, it was terrorizing even hearing myself speak. Um, it still brings tears to my eyes. It was absolutely terrorizing. I was so helpless and I didn't know which way to turn. I didn't know what to do. And I could hear her begging and crying for me with fear in the background. Um, you had one of your other children around. There were some there were some friends around. They were able to get in touch with your husband, get in touch with your daughter, confirm that she was okay, that in fact it wasn't her voice. Bree, do you have any idea how these scammers may have gotten a hold of your voice? Because they certainly used it to convince your mom. I actually have no idea because we've tried to trace this all the way back to my social media. Um, but I really do not post videos of me using my actual voice. And even if I did, they were from when I was younger and I have premature voice, so my voice was higher. But now I only post videos of me really just competing in sports, nothing of me actually using my voice. So it's really still a mystery to this day. Does that scare you at all, Brie? It does scare me because if they can get my voice in which ways I don't even know, then what else could they do with my family? What could they do with my mom? Do they have her location? Do they have my location? How can they get things and information out of this? And Jennifer, I know you're searching for those answers. The police said there was nothing they could do at the time because no crime had actually taken place. What has it changed, though, for your family? Um, it definitely opened my eyes. I had no idea the level of capabilities with AI. Um, we've had a lot of conversations about you can't believe everything you see, everything you hear, um, a family code word, uh, some different types of um, security measurements now that we use. And then we're also really hesitant. I, if I don't recognize a number or someone reaches out to me, even when AT&T reached out to me to try and uh, find out some more information about this. I didn't respond to them for weeks because I don't know who's really who and what's really real. And sometimes it's scary to even pick up your phone because there's the concern, I'm sure we've all heard, that if you say hello, then all of a sudden they may have your voice. When you testified before Congress, do you feel that you were heard by lawmakers? I do. Um, I was very happy that both sides have come together on this. Um, so that gives me a lot of hope that it's a unified mission. Uh, Senator Ossoff took it upon himself to call the Scottsdale Phoenix Police Department and uh, ask them what kind of protocol uh, they have for other victims of this. And they said, again, they were not able to do anything since no crime was committed. And he made a personal commitment that that will stop. So I do feel like this is actually finally being heard and that action's gonna be taken. Do you have a sense of what that action may be? Did they give you any indication? Uh, there's been a couple of different conversations, um, everything from watermarking so that they have traceability. Uh, it's really hard to trace at the moment. Um, some different types of things. It's, it's really hard to put your hands around exactly what can be done in the sense that it's so vast and so wide and what's already out there and how do you dial it back? So a lot of it's trying to get ahead of it, but uh, there's a couple different opportunities out there. Brie, you mentioned, um, you know, what you post now, uh, what you used to post, the, the, this confusion and the big mystery over how they got your voice. How has this impacted you, if it has, and the way you go about your daily life? 
this has impacted me in my everyday life just by being more cautious, you know. Um, I'm more tedious just even going out places by myself or just having that plan of action, you know, like what if this actually does happen? Just having things with me for protection and just being more aware. Jennifer and Brita Stefano, really appreciate you taking the time to join us this morning uh, and to share your story. I know it is still painful, um, but also so helpful for so many families. Thank you. Thank you so much for having thank us. Thank you so much. Poppy? Erica, thank you. What do you think, John Miller? Well, this is game changing in so many ways between you can already imagine going into a political season, you know, about the fakes and deep fakes that are going to be available, you know, from AI. You can then attach that to um, mischief here on the ground to what are the Russians and the North Koreans and the, the Chinese going to do with that. But if you get right down to a crime like this, um, this is... I mean, the story they just told about a parent hearing the phone ring and hearing their child crying in the background and saying, I messed up, you know, I need help. And then this voice coming on. So the keys here are uh, the object of that person who's demanding this money, their job is to keep you on the phone unbroken. They want you to, they want you to transfer funds, do all kinds of, they don't want you to pick up the phone and find out your daughter's really upstairs in her room doing her homework. Um, so the first thing is, you know, to figure out, does this have the signs of one of these scams? And this story is really important in recognizing that. You know, you want to say, okay, I'm not sure this is real. Ask her what her cousin Kelly's dog name is. You know, things that they haven't factored Smart. in there. The technology is really affecting crime in ways that are so unanticipated. I had a kidnapping in the NYPD where the person, you know, was missing and the ransom demands were coming in and we were looking for a ransom drop, you know, with airplanes and surveillance team. And it turns out the ransom was to be sent by Bitcoin. Wow. So now you don't have a ransom drop. And we're like, Bitcoin, what do we do with that in terms of figuring out where are the kidnappers, where are the victims? So these challenges will keep coming. And the, the issue with legislation is... To legislate against it, you have to first understand it. Yes. And we're just skiving the surface. It's a sad reality. Anytime there's a new technology, criminals swarm to it and weaponize it. And then it becomes an arm race between law enforcement, figuring it out, catching up. But public education is a key part of that, right? And I think that, that's very helpful even just to hear about those experiences that they just had. It's so interesting you say have, have that word. I mean, I think about, you know, our, our kids are all around the same age and we have a word of if you need me to pick you up at a party and you don't want your friends to know, you just let me know, right? This is your, I won't embarrass you as your parent. This is where you need that same word of I'm going to ask that word yeah. on the phone to know if it's you. To the point of politicians needing to understand this, yeah. Will Hurd was telling us in the break, former congressman, this is something that he's really leaning into. Do you see politicians leaning into this because Americans are concerned about it? Yeah. I mean, are they going to be able to speak to it, too, in the way that they need to and as informed as they need to be? They're doing their homework right now and they're playing catch up in a lot of ways. But you had the White House, you had a meeting with President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. Um, they were meeting with the top CEOs of these uh, technology companies trying to figure out where what the risks are and the benefits, because they feel like the benefits do outweigh the, the risks. But the risks are there. Do you think something that's different now than during social media? Mark Zuckerberg, when he started Facebook, the, the the motto, and it was his own words, move fast and break things. And then obviously he's reassessed since. But that is not how someone like Sam Altman at OpenAI, the creative chat GPT, is approaching this. It's very different. And he and others are calling for rules of the road regulation now, not after they've taken heat, but now. Should that give us some hope? 
I think so. I think they're starting to take it seriously, but you're just seeing the machine moving right now. And Congress is having hearings. The White House is mm-hmm. holding meetings. So you're seeing it kind of in motion. But stay tuned. I think more to come. Thank you guys very, very much. So just how long would it take you to solve a Rubik's Cube? Days, weeks, months, your entire lifetime? That would be me. For one 21-year-old, it was a matter of seconds. We're going to show you the video video next. Yes! 3.134. A new title holder solving the original three by three Rubik's Cube, this thing here that I have never solved. You didn't do that in the break. That, I mean, <laughs> I did this in the break. Poppy, watch me. She's my witness. Solved it in the fastest time ever. Take one more look at this. Yes! Yes, indeed, 21-year-old Max Park. He broke the record in Long Beach, California over the weekend. 3.13 seconds. Seconds. It takes me longer to just turn the thing, <laughs> let alone solve it. Max is no stranger to setting impossible records. He holds the fastest times in multiple other cube solves. Mm. Didn't know that was a thing. He's also diagnosed, we should know, with autism. And his parents say cubing has been good therapy since he was a little kid. When he was seven, eight, nine years old, so he couldn't like hold pennies or he couldn't open up a water bottle. I mean, he couldn't do anything with his fingers. The cube itself was just something that was going to be an exercise. The competitive aspect was never a component for us to get Max involved with. This is so uplifting. He serves as an official ambassador for Rubik's and inspiration to so, so many. What a great so ending great. to the yeah. show. I love that. That's I a lovely way too. to We're send gonna us work on our day. This. And we'll see you here tomorrow. We'll still be working on it. <laughs> and it's still and yeah. it's gonna look like this. <laughs> CNN News Central starts now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.